The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What's up, Brian? What's up, man? Good to see you. (laughs) Last time I saw you, we were on another continent. Uh, The European continent. Yeah, it was fun. That was exciting. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Going to visit the the Greek ruins with you was really special. That was very cool. That was uh, was that your first time seeing like the Acropolis and yes. downtown? Yes, it was my first time in Greece. Yeah, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. And the girls too. Mm-hmm. My wife had been, but yeah, the, right. the girls hadn't been. It was exciting. It was fun, man. It's it's so crazy. It's just to be there in that place where all this started is just to be on in that on that soil standing there and the the place where those people were 2500 years ago mm. very special or longer or longer yeah yeah by thousands of years potentially yeah yeah really exciting stuff it's cool man what's also interesting you know when you're there how it seems like your work is uh it's getting out there, mm. but it seems like the people that are involved in the day-to-day there, like the people that are giving tours and the people that – they don't really know. Yeah. That's – it's still – I think it's still – I wouldn't say it's controversial, but I think it's still a subject of debate, which, which is the way it should be. And yeah. what we're talking about is the, the potential of the ancient Greeks using psychedelics yeah. to find God, which is a big idea. It, well, it seems not just likely – it all all the pieces i mean it's it's like oh duh you know like if you found a murder weapon in the house where someone was suspected of being a murderer yeah like that's probably that's probably what happened (laughs) (laughs) like if you find vessels that contain psychedelic compounds in an area where people experience these profound rituals right well, they're probably doing drugs, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least in Spain they were. Yeah. The fact that there, there were no vessels found in Greece, in mainland Greece, and most especially by the, at the sanctuary in Eleusis, I think that that leaves healthy room for debate. I was mm. there like I was there the week before last at this at the conference I was preparing mm-hmm. back in July. So we finally had the the conference at Eleusis because of all the cities in Europe, it was nominated to be the the European capital of culture for 2023. So it was postponed from 21 because of the pandemic, and people finally came through town uh, a couple weeks ago. And the the site archaeologist, her name's Papi Papangeli, who was on site when I first uh, was interviewing her for for the book back in 2018. I got to see her again for the first time in five years. And she's probably spent more time at Eleusis than any human being, living or dead. Wow. Because she spent like 40 years basically maintaining the site. And so she used to commute from Athens, from her home, to Eleusis every day for, like, close to 40 years. So wow. she's done that pilgrimage more than any person living or dead throughout recorded history. Wow. And <laughs> when, when she finally saw the, the evidence, so, so I gave, like, a PowerPoint of the things that I talked about here a couple of years ago, all the evidence from the book about the, these ritual vessels that were discovered in the 1990s in Spain, and they show pretty clear evidence of, of ergot inside like a tiny beer chalice. So something like an ergotized beer, which was the thing that was hypothesized back in the 1970s as the elusive you know, mystery to, the, to these great mysteries. And so I showed her all the evidence, did my PowerPoint, and Poppy was thoroughly unconvinced that mm. psychedelics had anything to do with the mysteries in Eleusis. Interesting. What's her theory? Her theory is that uh, it's a modern interpolation that we think that we can't achieve these these states of mind in the absence of drugs. And so when I do ask her, she talks about the long pilgrimage, 
uh, and she talks about uh, the fasting that would have taken place, and she talks about like the emotional preparation for years in advance of this sort of culminating experience of a lifetime. So she points to all kinds of different things, maybe some like endogenous, endogenously produced ecstatic experience, but she's just not a fan of the drug hypothesis. And so the fact that uh, you know, this forensic evidence for drugs was found in these vessels 2,200 years ago, you know, at the place, at the time, where it looks like there's a connection to ancient Eleusis. She's unpersuaded, which I think is very funny and, and super cool because I think, I think debate is, is, is needed. Well, it's always good to be healthy, you know, in your skepticism. But at a certain <laughs> point in time, you gotta, what do you think is going on? Like, what, do you, what does she think? Why, why, the evidence that connects it to the vessels— that uh, we're in Spain. Does she think that has no connection? It I, seems like they're the same people, or at least from the same teachings. I asked her that, yes. Yeah, she, she believes there was a Greek influence. So we know that the, the place where this, uh, these vessels were found 2,200 years ago, uh, we know that it was a, there was a Greek colony called Emporion. And so we know that there were ancient Greeks who founded a colony not too far from this place. And the place we're talking about is Pontos. So it's a town a bit further inland. So it's undeniable that ancient Greeks were at this ancient colony as far back as like 575 B.C., by the way. It's when they established the colony. And so you have like 400 years from the establishment of this colony until you see this like this Hellenistic period where people who were influenced by the Greeks were then reinterpreting what seems to be their idea of the mysteries in honor of Demeter and Persephone, the, the two goddesses who are worshipped back in Greece at Eleusis. So um, it, that, all, that all lines up. And you see you know, images of what could be like an incense burner that looks like Demeter and Persephone, and you find these vases that look like they belong in Athens, showing Dionysus and this drunken parade. And you see what the, the most interesting to me was the, this kalathos that shows Triptolemus. And Triptolemus was kind of like the missionary of the ancient mysteries. And you see images of him in the museum at Eleusis, and they found a near identical image of him in, at this, uh, at the, not too far from this site in Spain. So like all the pieces kind of fit together. But I think that, you know, I can't speak for Poppy, but maybe she sees it as sort of like, like a renegade group, you know, something mm. that that was. Because, you know, again, to celebrate the mysteries outside the temple, outside Demeter's temple at Eleusis was a sacrilege. We have to keep that in mind. It doesn't mean that people weren't trying to recreate what was happening there. And there's this famous incident in Athens in 414 BC called the Profanation of the Mysteries, where we know that some people at least were trying to recreate what they thought was happening in the temple at home, in private dining rooms. So if that was happening and the mystery was spilling out of this temple, it stands to reason that something was happening in Spain, maybe in southern Italy. I spent a lot of time looking there too, uh, or maybe across North Africa or the Near East. So like, I think it's very possible I, th I think I think what she's looking for is evidence in Greece, at Eleusis or thereabouts, which is why I've been spending so much time there over the past couple of years. Well, it seems like even today, rituals and you know these psychedelic ceremonies that people do in other countries when they go to the jungle. There's so much fanfare and r there's so much behind it. There's so much. There's a lot of secrets. Hmm. Like people contain these secrets. They talk about these things that they're about to embark on, and they're they're in control of this experience for these people. Like they're they're not going to tell you the exact recipe, how they do it. You know, most of them kind of keep that secret. They they brew it. They bring it to you. There's always been like someone who holds 
like secret information mm. and it, it kind of makes sense and then you see the exact same thing in america you see these little psychedelic ceremonies that people do outside of the jungle you know and they've brought ayahuasca back and now that they're they get a group of people together in the living room and they burn candles and mm. trip balls together you know <laughs> that sounds fun but it seems very similar to that yeah. kind of thing where they would try to reenact it or recreate it somewhere else yeah, I mean, even in the classical period, like, so we, we think Eleusis goes back to sort of like the Acropolis, right? So when you're looking at, the, at these sites, you're, you're looking at uh, different moments in time. So you can't look at the Acropolis and not think about the Mycenaean period that goes back to like 1500 BC. And you can't think about like the classical golden age of Athens in the 5th century BC. And you can't think about what happened to it thereafter because power changes hands, right, yeah. to, the, to the Romans. Yeah. Uh, in 146 BC. And then, you know, it goes into the Byzantine Empire in the 5th century AD. And then it goes to the Ottomans after that. So, like, there's always been this transfer of power, and these sites experience different levels of, uh, of participation and ritual and mystery. So when you look at Eleusis, you know, as, as old as it could be, um, going back, you know, probably to 1500 BC, in the classical period, it was always changing. So when you talk about secrets, you talk about potions and sacraments, I think they were always, always changing throughout time. And so maybe the secret recipe in the 5th century BC was different from what it looked like a thousand years before that and a thousand years since. And so what we do know is that Dionysus, who's this other god of ritual madness and ecstasy in the theater, remember we went to the theater mm-hmm. of Dionysus, you know, he, he sneaks into the mysteries at some point. And I think what you begin to see is this like this urge towards uh, what some scholars call private, spontaneous, pagan piety, which means mm. that aside from these, these, these centralized temples, like the Temple of Demeter, it sits at Eleusis, and that's where these rites happen, and it's an utter profanation to celebrate them outside. What you see with Dionysus coming into these mysteries is this urge towards the celebration of ritual and ceremony outside the temples privately and spontaneously. So like the, the churches, the temples of Dionysus were sort of outside. They were always celebrated in the forests and the mountains and at the southern slope of the Acropolis, which is interesting and urban centers too. But I think over time, you begin to see like this thirst to celebrate these mysteries outside the temples, which is why the evidence in Spain makes so much sense to me. Mm. When it comes to endogenously created uh, experiences, have you ever looked into what people experience doing kundalini yoga? Hmm. Yeah. Have you? That's it's it, that's pretty interesting. I practiced yoga. Yeah. For a little time. Well, I studied Sanskrit. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I studied Sanskrit. So you can read that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that new AI that's um it's it's translating cuneiform? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I saw a story about that earlier this year. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, we're getting smarter. That's, yeah. well, not us. <laughs> our, <laughs> our successors. <laughs> Maybe they'll crack the code. Oh, they'll definitely crack the code. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be easy for them. Uh, probably. I mean, if we didn't have the Rosetta Stone, how much would we know about hieroglyphs and ancient Egyptian writing? Very little, and that was relatively recently in the yeah. grand scheme of history, right? It's just amazing that one piece of archaeological evidence led to, like, oh, my God, like a jigsaw puzzle. That's the piece. Yeah. This is it. That's what we're looking for here. Mm. We're looking for um, a, a little jigsaw. So with Kundalini yoga, which I, I I think is very, I've not practiced it. I've only done like your bullshit soccer mom yoga. 
<laughs> that counts too. I've done, I mean, I've done some other kind of classes, flow classes and classes to music and stuff like that. But most of the yoga that I've done has been that Bikram stuff, that mm. 90 minute hot yoga. It's 20 something poses. Mm. You do them the same ones every day. Mm. I really loved it. Mm. But um, I know that gives you some sort of strange high. It really does. Like when you leave there, like it's not a coincidence that yoga people are all flaky and super peaceful like it, <laughs> it really it does something for you that it just puts you in a very relaxed and unique state but kundalini uh as practiced by several people that i know i've, I've just never done it mm. is supposedly you can reach states that are very similar to being on psychedelic drugs yeah in terms of like absolute visions geometric patterns that are flowing around you like but you're not supposed to concentrate on that which is interesting like at least according to one of my friends who took it his his uh, instructor was saying that you're you're getting distracted right. by trying to trying to have these experiences that's not the goal it's decided right. not they call them the cities the the powers mm. that arise mm. and it can be everything from visions to supernatural powers and oh supernatural uh, powers. supernatural i didn't know about that yeah. like, what have they claimed um well when you're traveling outside time and space the ability to see into the deep past and the far future the ability to uh, to transport your body, to teleport, um, all kinds of uh, mental telepathy and things like that. I, I mean, these aren't. That's not the goal of yoga. Obviously, they call them the siddhis, um, but it 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 happens. Um, Does it though? Well, sure. it's uh, sure we have lots of literature that attests to it. Eight classical siddhis. Uh, anima, the ability to reduce one's body to the size of an atom. <laughs> that, that's a superpower. Yeah. Mahima, the ability to expand one's body to an infinitely large size. Legima, the ability to become weightless or lighter than air. Garima, the ability to become heavy or dense. And Prapti, the ability to realize whatever one desires. That one seems like a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a superpower you want. Yeah, that seems like it would be a real problem. Yeah. Yeah, you want um, to be the king of the world. Uh, yeah, it's not a good thing. Mm, not for some people. <laughs> you can handle it. I don't know if but, I could. Uh, I don't know if anybody could. Yeah, um, and that—that's well. That, that's kind of the whole point. Is that the you know, you're talking what you just talked about is the the way the ego gets in the in the uh, what, the way it steps into this river, right? So mm -hmm. in in all these spiritual practices, it's supposed to be about the 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 deflation yeah. of the ego, and so. If, if you're going through these spiritual exercises and these praxis and these disciplines and your ego is still very much intact, then when the superpowers arise, what do you, what do, you do with them? I think yeah. that, and that, that's the dangerous part of any spiritual discipline. It's the dangerous part of psychedelics, mm -hmm. for sure, yeah. um, because you get this, this dramatic insight into the nature of yourself and maybe the underlying structure of the cosmos, and all of a sudden you think you're all-knowing right. and maybe all-powerful. Well, also, you sort of espouse that to others who haven't experienced it. And mm. There's like the guru thing that happens, mm. which I think is really problematic for Western people. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, there's a lot of, especially men in Western culture that get involved in those things and then they become leaders and they're yeah. semi-cult leaders, you yeah. know? Yeah, someone sent me an article yesterday about this as an interesting title, Chasing the Numinous, Hungry Ghosts in the Shadow of the Psychedelic Renaissance. Uh, it just came out in this, in this journal, Chasing the Numinous. And, and it talk, this notion of the hungry ghosts is, um, it's preta, 
in Sanskrit. Speaking of, of more Sanskrit, so preta, these, these hungry ghosts who are constantly hungry, constantly thirsty, and no matter how much they feed or try and satiate themselves, it's never enough. Mm. And so it's sort of this, this metaphor for uh, the Western mind and consumerism and extraction. And, you know, wouldn't it be a shame if we approached psychedelics, yoga, all these spiritual disciplines with, with that sort of that broken Western mentality trying to figure out what this can do for me? Yeah, that's what it is. What can this do for me? Um, most psychedelic experiences that I've ever had, one of the key sort of overwhelming aspects of it is to get out of your own way mm. and that you're in your own way and that you're thinking about yourself and you're thinking of yourself and it's just wasted energy, mm. wasted. And that instead you should be thinking about like the things you're doing and how you're interacting with the world. And also your ego is just bullshit. It's just, it's, just, it's just some leftover chimp shit that's designed to keep us alive. It's designed to make sure that you procreate, make sure that you think very highly of yourself. Uh-huh. So you want to procreate. But you came to psychedelics later in life, right? Yes, yeah. Is that, I mean, was that a good thing? Yeah, probably, because I made a lot of mistakes. Mm. And, you know, you learn from that. Like, you, you do need mistakes in mm. life. And you, you also need to understand what it's like to be very stupid and very foolish mm. and young and brash. Mm. And then also older and more experienced, but still n- know nothing in terms, I mean, you really, as much as you know, the smartest person alive knows basically nothing about the nature of the universe. Uh, you know, you might know things on a molecular level, on a cosmic level, you understand how galaxies are formed, that's cute. But <laughs> you really you fucking don't know shit. You don't know shit, you haven't seen shit. There's too much out there, it's just too big. It's, it should be, a, and I think it was forever when we didn't have light pollution. Hmm. It was the overwhelming evidence that you're not shit. Hmm. You know, the, 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 if you thought very highly of yourself and you lay on your back and looked up in the cosmos, at best, you could think that you were sent down from God to do his bidding. Hmm. But you didn't think you were anything greater than that. You couldn't. It's too, there's too much evidence. The sky is just filled with these fucking enormous nuclear explosions that are happening all over the cosmos. It's impossible to even wrap your mind. I mean, back then they had no real knowledge of the, the scope of it all. But it's pretty obvious that it's insane. The, I mean, the night skies, I'm sure. Have you seen the night sky in a place where there's absolutely no light? You know, sa- yes, but sadly, like, I can count it on, on two hands. I can only count it on one. <laughs> it, well, twice. The second time, not as profound. But I went to the, um, the Keck Observatory mm. on the Big Island. And you go, uh, the first time I went, um, it was quite a while ago. And uh, when we first drove up there, I was really bummed out because it was so cloudy. I was like, ah, this sucks. We're not going to be able to see anything. But then when we went through the clouds to where the observatory is, there's nothing. It's just stars. And you get out and you're like, oh, my God. It's like being on a spaceship. It's like you're in a convertible spaceship and you're hurling through the galaxy. Because what what they've done on the Big Island is pretty profound. They, They put... These uh, lights, the, the street lights are, you know, a type of light that doesn't, it doesn't expand outward. What is it called? What are those lights called, Jamie? You're a photographer. Diffused. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Diffused lighting. Mm. So diffused lighting all throughout 
the big island. So it doesn't fuck with the light pollution issue that you get when you're trying to look at the, at the real sky. Mm. So even though there is light from these, you know, streets and all that, it doesn't affect it. When mm. you're way up there, it's a couple hours drive from the shore. And you get up there and it's just the one time that I went there. And this is, I guess this is about 20 years ago. The one time I went there was just like, oh, my God. Just, oh, my God. Like, you can't believe it. You can't believe it's so it's so much, and it really made me sad because I was like, "That's what people used to see every night. Mm. That's what people used to see every night before these jackasses invented electricity." <laughs> Edison, <laughs> you motherfucker! What have you done? What have you done? We don't think of it as anything like that because we just electricity is amazing. You can go out at night, you can go to dinner, you can fucking drive your Tesla. Electricity is amazing, but. It has made us so ignorant to our place in the cosmos, mm. and it's taken away so much wonder. Because when the sky is just totally dark, you look up and you see a star, you know, way over there. Or, oh, look, the moon. I could see the moon. <laughs> you just get used to it. It's just you don't see enough. You don't see enough. And yeah. then when you actually do, you're like, oh, now I know. Well, you know, why would they, when the people are starving to death and just struggling, hunting, hunting and gathering, why would they be concentrating on constellations? Well, of course they would. Because there's nothing to do at night. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. What do you think you do all night? I think, I think that that could be the origin of the religious sensibility. Mm. Uh, if you think that when we, when we were hunting and gathering, you're talking about like 99% of our history, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you think about what comes before us, I know you think about this a lot. Uh, yeah. I've been fascinated uh, with some conversations I've been having with a friend called Lee Berger. He's a, a paleoanthropologist in South Africa. Um, and it got me thinking about all these archaic hominins. And one of them is, is Homo erectus, which I'm like, I don't know why I'm so fascinated by erectus of all, the, of all the hominins. But, you know, it goes back at least probably two million years. Uh, which is something to think about. Homo habilis comes before erectus. That could be like 2.8 million years. And so erectus probably sheds the body hair of habilis. It's bipedal, obviously. Um, And they probably discover fire. Uh, Mm. And so what that means, and by the way, they go off and explore the planet, which is crazy for a being that old. I mean, they were potentially the first seafarers. Really? The first seafaring hominins. Do we know what kind of vessels they used? No idea. Probably rafts, if Jamie can find it. Wow. Um, uh, they were heading, I mean, they, we have erectus remains from Africa to Europe to Asia. Uh, so, wow. So they, I mean, they, they, were, they were on the move, you know, over a million years ago. And the thing about fire, why I mentioned that, the thing about fire is that if they, whether or not they were cooking their food, they had fire for warmth and light at night. Uh, but it didn't obscure the night sky. And so... It's interesting to think about whether Erectus sat around their campfires a million years ago and told stories, the first stories about the night sky. How, they had language? We don't know if they had language or not, but there's, they speculate that maybe the beginnings of proto-language would have mm. begun because, I mean, I, I was joking, but like, what do you do at night? Right. What do you do at night? Right. We, you know, we're, again, we're, so distra- we're not just distracted by light pollution. We're distracted by a million things mm. when the sun sets. Um, and that's, again, that's relatively recently. I mean, even in the Middle Ages, there was, there was nothing to do. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, but think about a million years ago. And so it's possible that around these primordial fires, the very first stories, storytelling, 
would have emerged uh, around these around the constellations. In the what does time. Homo erectus look like, Jamie? Did they have uh, an artist interpretation? That's cool. Oh, wow. <clears throat> So very person-like. Yeah, this article says that if they sailed, they, <clears throat> they probably also had a lingo for it, mm. a sailing lingo, Ooh. to describe probably where they were going or what you were going to see. And they p sort of had the, I mean, the, the shape of the arms and the legs and the, the proportions very similar to humans? Yeah, similar, but, but, but distinct. I mean, they were bipedal. Um, yeah, but that looks like almost like a person. And that's and that's really old, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's at least two million years old. Um, what what one point eight million? Yeah. So what freaks me out is like, what made them stand up? <laughs> you know, like we're the only ones. Like, what what the hell was that all about? Yeah. Like, what was that about? You do see chimps occasionally walking on their hind legs, and you see gorillas doing it as well. Yeah. Orangutans, but it's just not normal. Like, what what would make someone say this is the only way to go? Uh, I don't need four legs. <laughs> they were curious. Right, but, but how would that be an evolutionary advantage? I mean, well, you can, you can scavenge a lot better, um, and you can protect yourself from prey a lot better, and also you can hunt prey a lot better. And so what they think, I'm not sure if it was a rectus or another one, uh, but they, would, uh, they were good at long-distance running, so they, they, could, they could wear out potential prey. So mm. th there's an there's an adaptive there's at least one adaptive advantage. It's persistence hunting, right? Persistence hunting to to, to yeah. wear out and chase down prey. That's a hard way to do it. That's yeah, that's 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 they don't sweat. They <laughs> sweat, so you just run them down. Just run them down. A lot of things that run really fast can't run really long. Hmm. A lot of them. Some of them can. Hmm. Like antelope can. Good luck running one of those down. Have you tried? No, but like um the ones that we have in America that we call antelope that I think they're I want to say they're maybe even in the goat family because sometimes they call them speed goats. But those, the, the antelope that they have in America, the pronghorn antelope, is actually the reason why it's so fast is because at one point in time there was a cheetah here. And they went extinct, but the antelope survived. So it has the speed to evade something that runs insanely fast. So these little fuckers can go like 60 miles an hour. Damn. They're amazing. I, I only saw one for the first time um, this year, the, on like actually in the wild. Where? In Utah. Huh. Yeah, it's really cool. We parked the car, got out, put the pulled the magnifying glasses out to check them out. Just it's an it's a prehistoric creature. It really is. It's just a remnant of the past. It lived with all the other megafauna that went extinct about you know whatever. Was it fifteen thousand years ago? Twelve thousand eight hundred. Yeah, at least starting then. Yeah, so those those creatures were like the last of the Mohicans. Mm. Like they they had to run super fast, so they could now like nothing can fuck with them, mm. other than humans. Like at a certain point in time, when they're young, they're very vulnerable. But at a certain point in time, they get to the point like, good luck catching me, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like. Coyotes and mountain lions, like you can't catch them. <laughs> they're too fast. Yeah, I mean they're faster than everything. What's the population like in, in Utah? Not so good. Yeah, not so good. Um, it's good in some places. It's good in Wyoming. It's good in some places in the West, but um, they get hammered. the The babies get hammered by coyotes, hmm. and it's it's hard for them to to compete. You know, it's just when your calves and your 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 you know your fawns are getting slaughtered. There's not a lot your species can do. Hmm. You know, that, that 
that becomes an issue in areas that have a lot of predators. You know, that becomes an issue in areas that have a lot of bears and areas like areas that have a lot of bear, like the moose population just gets hammered mm. because the babies never make it. Mm. Like in most places, I think in one of the places in Alberta, it's more, I think it's somewhere in the range of 50 to 60% of all baby deer and moose just get eaten by bears. Jeez. Yeah. You think a lot about death. Well. The cycle of, of, of I think death. a lot about nature and how amazingly fascinating that it's so amazingly fascinating to me that we live in this very bizarre technological sort of raft in the middle of nature. Mm. You know, we live in these cities, these little little communities that we have everything set up for the the nature of the human animal in 2023. But the rest of the like you go out in the wild, like they they have no idea that game is being played. Mm. They have, they don't they they're doing the exact same thing they've been doing forever. And it's things chasing after things and things trying not to get eaten. And that's every day. That's all it is. That's all it is. And then when things die, there's, you know, raptors come in and, and vultures come in and, and all these scavengers come in. Mm-hmm. And that's their job. That's why the way we treat our dead is so, at least we used to think, was so unique to Homo sapiens. Mm. And how we treat the notion of, uh, of death and burial. Have we talked about Homo naledi before? No. We need to talk about Homo naledi. Okay. Uh, Jamie, I brought some some slides in that. Uh, I brought some some things I want to show you. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I, get a cigar. Yeah, go for it. Little tiny one, suck. This will be a fun a fun adventure. Okay. Do you see where it is? It's at the like number sixteen there. Yeah. Homo naledi. Homo naledi. That's a cute name. It sounds like a, a song. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> like it'd have a good beat to it. Um, what what year is Homo naledi? There, there it is. So, it was discovered by by Lee in South Africa in the cradle of humankind. And this goes back. Uh, well, he this the discovery is in 2013. The, they think that th- this could be anywhere from 250 to 300,000, 335,000 years old. Um, that's what I wanted to show you. Um, this is this is where it was discovered. So you see the rising star cave system there in South Africa. Um, it was found in this in this cavernous underground labyrinth of networks, uh, where uh, Lee found uh, a number of different bodies that had been uh, apparently left there by this species, Homo naledi. Um, and the reason that's interesting is because again. Homo sapiens, to our knowledge, are the only species to have ever intentionally buried their dead. So you see things like uh, you see grief and mourning practices in the animal. You talked about the animal world, like when they when they just die, they're they're left to rot typically. Although you see you see mourning practices in in cetaceans, and you see it in elephants and maybe chimpanzees, but no one buries their dead. And so that was the big bright line uh, that no species had ever crossed, seemingly aside from Homo sapiens. Although there's also Evidence for uh, for Neanderthal burial, which is goes back a, a potentially a very long time, like over four hundred thousand years. There's a site in Spain called Cima de los Huesos, um, but Neanderthal is very close to us as well. You know, we have Neanderthal DNA like in our own genetic makeup. They're kind of cousins, uh, so that that wasn't really too shocking. The fact that there could be Neanderthal burial, but the fact that something that looks like that and is potentially um, you know, at least 300,000 years ago. But morphologically, it's archaic. 
kind of like we're talking about erectus. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's really archaic looking homona lady. It's yeah. it's short. It's about four eight to five two. It's slender and skinny. Um, but it, there are features on it that look again like archaic. Like it could be at least a million years old, for example, or or, or longer. Mm. So it's strange that a being that archaic finds its way into this into this cave system. And, and deliberately deposits the dead. So that was like a very controversial idea. It was so controversial that like Lee didn't know what the, what the bones were doing there because uh, it just didn't make sense. And by the way, like it's, it's become the richest site for hominid discovery on, on the continent and maybe, maybe anywhere because of, because of the profusion of bones. They, they found like 1,500 different bones. I think it's close to 2,000 now, which is really, really strange in paleoanthropology. So Lee was digging another site called Gladys Vale, not too far from this, for years, years. And typically what you find are animals. You find tens or hundreds of thousands of animal bone fragments and a very small percentage of, of hominids. So for example, at that site in Gladys Vale, he found a tooth and a pinky bone over the course of like many, many years, mm. which is not unusual. He comes to this rising star cave system and all of a sudden there's 1,500 bone fragments they're able to assemble what they think is like 15 different individuals. So mm. 15 individual specific homo naledi are being deposited in that dinaledi chamber, and they don't know why. Uh, and so they begin to, to look more into it. I want to show you how, how difficult it is to get in there, by the way, and sure. why it was so difficult to, to believe at first. If you look at the, the cave chamber there, um, it was just up, uh, up there before. It's um, on the next one, maybe. Yeah, it's, re- it's really hard to access that. You can see... Um, so you enter at the top there, and mm-hmm. that this is what Homo naledi was doing potentially 300,000 years ago. They found this cave system. They would descend there on the left, go down into what's called Superman's Crawl, which is just 10 inches high. So they had to go on their bellies, potentially. And so they think they dragged the bodies through that they Superman's Crawl? They dragged the claw? dead bodies. That Superman's the... Crawl is only 10 inches high, and you could drag a body they, through that? It's, it, gets, it gets worse. So they not only drug it through that crawl there, they went up Dragon's Back, as you can see there, and then down what's called the chute. You see the, arrow, the yellow arrow yeah. at the chute? So the chute goes from the top of Dragon's Back into the Dinaledi Chamber. The chute is like seven or eight inches wide, seven or eight inches, and it goes down like 40 feet from the top of Dragon's Back to Dinaledi. And inside Dinaledi is where they found f- at least 15 bodies. How did they get a body through seven inches? Uh, it, I mean, we, we can go there too. Like it's a, really? So Lee um, avoided it for many years. He was able to actually make it down himself. There's a great document. You've got to see the documentary. It's on Netflix. It's called Cave of Bones. If you look up, look up unknown, mm. unknown colon Cave of Bones, you'll find uh, an awesome documentary that, that charts the discovery and what they call the underground astronauts who managed to, to get their way through Superman's crawl and Dragon's back and actually man, managed to get into the dinner lady chamber. It's like, it's, it's, it's so captivating how they discovered uh, and then root through the, the, these bones. And so, okay, there's a bunch of bones in there. It, right. it, it's, it's so strange that it doesn't make sense at first. So the, like the, the working hypotheses are that it was some kind of accident or it was animal predation. Okay, animals killed these homo naledi and, and animals drugged them through that, that, that mm-hmm. chamber complex uh, into dinner lady. That, that was one. Or maybe like, maybe there was a flash flood or maybe you know this, something happened, or like it wasn't like an excursion party gone gone bad. A bunch of people spelunking, and they got trapped in there. But it turns out that, that that's that's not the case. It's not only not the case. It seems like they were intentionally buried in these holes, and so they found pits which looked like graves. And again, against all expectations, because only sapiens and maybe Neanderthal does this, 
this archaic be being is deliberately disposing of their dead in ritual fashion inside this chamber, which is super difficult to access in the first place. It would take it would take you like at least thirty or forty minutes to, to make your way from the how, surface. Of how it. would I even get in something that's seven inches wide? Uh, you can <laughs> you have to see the, the the footage for how to do it. You, you you can make your way through it. I mean, there's it gets wider at parts, but at, at very like uh, at very uh, there, there's there's sections where it's really really tight. And like like Lee gets stuck at some point, and so the people who went down are really really thin thin people mm. who, who can navigate, and like professional spelunkers, for example, it was that dangerous to to access. It can and be done. And if there's any earthquake activity at all, you're fucked. Yeah, it's something else to think about. You just have to imagine like what would motivate them to take this journey in the first place. That's that's why I mention it because it's it's not just the first discovery of the deliberate burial of the dead by a species that's not us. They go to great lengths to do this yeah. because they too were thinking about these cycles of life and death, right? Uh, and so if it wasn't an accident and it wasn't flash flooding and it wasn't animal predation and this was deliberate burial ritual, like why would they do that? And it seems like, and again, now you're speculating, but it seems like they set up this complex or they, they use the, this, this naturally existing complex to actually reenact a passage Right, some passage from light into darkness, um, and sort of like the passage into the underworld, into death itself. And this this has so many resonances with Eleusis, by the way, um, and everything that, that that we saw there, and these ancient mystery complexes. Again, this notion of of of, of spelunking into the underworld and meeting the gods and goddesses of death, and really confronting death and mortality in a powerful way. Like it's happening in a different species, three hundred thousand years ago. So. What else are they bringing into these caves? It gets, it gets crazier. The, doc, the documentary is fantastic. What, what they also find are, are, is fire. And so I mentioned that Homo erectus probably had fire. So that's not entirely surprising. But, you know, they figured out a way, uh, this species figured out a way to illuminate the pet, which is pitch dark, obviously. Right. And so they figured out a way to light fires along the way. We think at least for light, but they were also cooking down there. Uh, wow. they, they found, speaking of, I think they found antelope or springbuck, the, 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 these tiny bones uh, that were cooked in this fire. So they, they, they were manipulating fire, um, at least having some sort of like, I don't know if it's a funerary meal or something that could have been related to this, this ritual complex. So they're, they're, they're controlling fire. They're dragging bodies into this, into this pit um, over, over different generations potentially, which makes you think about the possibility of language and how this ritual is communicated from one generation to another. And uh, the craziest thing is that they also found, um, just last year when Lee finally made his way into the Dinaledi chamber, um, in the antechamber before that, they found scratch markings, which I think there's some pictures in that, in that file, Jim. They found um, like, like hash markings. Just like, so there you go. So the one on the right is, is Naledi. That's, that could be 300,000 years old. The one on the left is Neanderthal. And you can see, like, the crazy similarity. They, they took a rock and they just etched it into these cave walls. Um, Homo sapiens did, d does the same thing in, in Blombo's cave, not too far away in South Africa. That, that's 80,000 years old. So it's only 80,000 years old? That's as old as we get in South Africa, Homo sapiens. That's 80,000 years old. So Naledi's doing something that looks to the untrained eye very similar, potentially 300,000 years ago. Wow. So Homo sapiens, when do we first start appearing? 
uh, the numbers are always changing. It could yeah. be like three, 300,000, 400,000 years ago. So Homo naledi and Homo sapiens existed at the same time. And so because of what Lee found there, like so, some, of the, some of his critics claim that actually it was Homo sapiens who were making these markings. Like it's so unbelievable that naledi is dragging these bodies in there and making these markings and controlling fire and potentially having tools, by the way. It's so unthinkable that, that, that some people, some scholars think that it, it, this, is, this is the evidence of sapiens finding these caves. Is it possible, I mean, did they interact with each other? Do we have any understanding of whether or not they interacted they, they with have. each other? They could have. I asked Lee the same questions. They, they, they could have. We, we don't have any evidence of sapiens in the area, so we don't know for sure. But it raises, like, really, really profound questions. And this is pure speculation. But if they did come into contact with another, because we know we have this relationship with, with Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. We interbred yeah. with Neanderthal. We have no idea what our relationship with Homo naledi was like. Mm. Um, did we interbreed? Did we exchange knowledge, communication? Uh, did they teach us, this pure speculation, did they teach us about death? Did they teach us about these, these burial practices? Did they, did they even know something that primitive sapiens didn't know? Did they pass it on to Neanderthal, et cetera, et cetera? What could they possibly know other than, you know, how to do this? The, my- the mystery. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, why are they doing it? Right. Why are, why they, are doing they doing it? it? Yeah. Why does no animal do this? Right. And uh, again, like Lee and the team, they can't answer this. But if, if you're going to those lengths to bury your dead over successive generations, it raises the, the big questions that maybe they were asking um, well before us. What happens when we die? Did they believe in an afterlife? Did they have a concept of God? Did they have a concept of spirituality? Did they look at the stars at night and wonder uh, where we came from and how we got here and where we go after death? And did they have a special insight that death maybe wasn't the ending but the beginning of a new journey back to the stars, into this underworld? Who knows? But, you know, we, we see this mythology pop up in our earliest historical societies, which goes back 5,000 years. Think about the Book of the Dead and the Egyptians or the the Tibetan Book of the Dead or all these classical mysteries I spend all this time researching. That's the essential question they're trying to answer is what happens after death. So to think that a species that precedes us uh, was asking the same questions and developing rituals around it like completely upends our notion of what it means to be human. Because if the way we approach death is not exceptional, in the hominin world at least, then what, is, what else does that say about us? Right. And how did that get started? Who was the first person to take a body and go, you know, we should really do something with this? And why would they do that? Yeah. Especially during the time where you're basically spending most of your time trying to eat and avoid predators. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Like, that seems like an immense undertaking. To crawl through all that and deposit bodies and you're cooking and lighting fires along the way. It seems like there had to be some communication. Right. So Lee looks at all those data points and says, unabashedly, there's something like a culture here, a non-human culture. Mm. And this could be the first non-human culture we found in paleoanthropology. It kind of makes sense, though, too, that it shouldn't be just human culture. This is the first culture. Mm. Like, if you if you're experiencing these things that are i mean if you're experiencing what's the the remnants of these things that were there before people Mm. it's not like we just like i got an idea like (laughs) out of nowhere and we just all of a sudden came up with all these ideas i mean they they might have been 
I mean, how intelligent do we think this thing was? Uh, so, I mean, that's the crazy part. So you couldn't really tell from some of the, the recreations and what, what we think they look like. But their brain, I didn't mention this, is the size of an orange. Oh. It's one-third the size of a homo sapiens brain. I kind of buried the lead. That's the shocking part of all this, is that a being with a brain one-third the size of ours figures out this complex ritual. But is that, should that sh still be shocking when we know so much about crows? Mm. You know, crows are very smart, like clever. They play games. They, they know how to solve puzzles. They know how to drop rocks into a water bottle to raise the level of the water so they can drink it. They do. They use tools to extract food. They they. You ever seen uh, crows make cats start fights with each other? No. They do it for sport. <laughs> like one crow will f like two cats are on rival rooftops, and the crow will fly over and just be just close enough to the cat that the cat can't get him, and he kind of fucks with him and irritates him and on purpose. Him on purpose, and then he flies over to the other cat and kind of fucks with him. And the cat's like, get out of here, man. And so they're both like, Rawr! they're heightened because they're being fucked with by this crow. And then he kind of like coaxes these cats into a fight. And then these cats fight and they fall off the roof. Watch this shit. Watch this. Look at this. Look at this crow. He's getting close. He's like, hey, motherfucker. What's up? Say, hey, bitch. What's up? He just gets just close enough. See, the cat's like, get the fuck out of here, man. Like he's, he's fucking with them. And every time the cat tries to move on him, he flies away. And then the cat just jumps on that other fucking cat. <laughs> and they start duking it out. Like, look. And he's, like, sitting right next to it. They fall off the roof. And the crow flies down with him. He's like, yeah, get him. He's get still him. going. It's fun for him. He's having a good time. Like, there's no evolutionary advantage to doing that. That's, that's blood sport. Look, and then they fall down that, that little <laughs> boom. <laughs> Cats are just going to war. And that, that crow's like, yeah, get him. Kick his ass. Weird. They're very, very, very smart. They're, they've done all these studies where they show that um, if you give a crow a, a one size tool, it will use that tool to extract a larger tool. Mm. And it'll use that tool to get the food. Mm. Like they've done all these like weird little mazes and had crows solve them. They're mm. very clever. Mm. Sneaky little fuckers. Tiny little brains. So we're not exceptional. Well, how about octopi? Octopuses are very smart. And what the fuck are they? You know, they, they found that there's a, a poisonous jellyfish that uh, it's, it's a very toxic jellyfish. But even though it doesn't have a brain, it has the ability to learn. That's something they just recently discovered. Hmm. See if you can find that. It's pretty interesting. It's like a, some just fucking weird-ass jellyfish that it stings you. You're fucked. But this thing has the ability to learn, which is very surprising. Like, it doesn't even have a brain. Like, what? Okay, so, all right, what's learning then? Huh. Like, where, where is memory? Is, are we wrong about where memories are stored? Scientists provide evidence that tiny Caribbean box jellyfish, with lack, which lack a central nervous system, <laughs> can learn to navigate through mangrove roots. Yeah. It's interesting. That so, just came out. Yes. A couple so, weeks ago. Yeah, so what, what is learning then? I mean, is it all? Do are we silly by thinking it's in the mind? Hmm. Is the mind an antenna? Is uh, is are there other antenna in the body? Is, is a gut feeling a real thing? Hmm. You know, you know that expression, gut mm -hmm. feeling. Like mm -hmm. why, why gut? Like what is that? <laughs> Maybe we focus on the brain too much. 
Perhaps. The organ. Well, we know if you shut the brain off, the consciousness shuts off too. So it makes sense mm -hmm. that you'd con concentrate on that thing. And it, it is very big. And it's very unusual how quickly it grew. There's, there's a lot of weirdness to the human brain. The mm. doubling of the human brain size, that's like one of the biggest mysteries ever. They don't know what the fuck caused that. Yeah, from Erectus uh, to Sapiens, like we were talking about. Over a period of two million years. Yeah. 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 Double. But then you have these small-brained creatures mm. in the meantime, which are doing exceptional things. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the increase in the brain isn't what we should be focusing on, at least not exclusively. If brainless jellyfish can learn and... Uh, yeah, a, a hominid species with an orange brain can develop complex rituals around death. Yeah, but there's also clearly a correlation between the larger brain and much more ability to manipulate its environment. Mu I mean, the, the difference between what a human being, a homo sapiens, capable of. And, like, we're amazed that they drag their body into a hole in the ground. Mm. You know, we, we build rockets, fly to outer space. It's like a big difference in mm. the, the weirdness of what the the creative mind can achieve in a homo sapien. So some of us. Yeah. Some of us. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, some not so much. Yeah. But so the brain know, hasn't done anything for Ditch most. diggers too. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got to dig ditches until AI. And then, you know, that's what's going to be interesting. Then you said our successors take over? Our successors, yeah. <clears throat> when President AI solves all the world's problems, <laughs> we just give in. I don't know. I have faith in the human spirit. Mm. I gave a talk about this uh, in, in Paris a few months ago about yeah. artificial versus ancestral intelligence. And I happen to think that what Homo Naledi was doing is among some of the most intelligent activity our species can... Uh, get itself busy with, which is investigating this notion of life and death. Um, I think that's that's what makes us human, is asking th these big questions and trying to figure out the nature of consciousness. And this is this is what all these mystery religions were trying to do. I think there there was more science than religion. Mm. Um, I mean, they're called mystery religions, but this was uh, the process of our ancestors trying to figure out um, the the secrets to the universe and antiquity and and for. The working hypothesis is that psychedelic drugs and altered states of consciousness had something to do with that ability to probe into uh, into these mysteries. And I think that, you know, the the caves also have a lot to do with it. Like there were, there were caves constantly um, uh, being used by, well, predecessor species for sure, but then also ancient societies to enter into these profound states of awareness, going back into the womb of the earth to really figure out that border between life and death, and maybe navigate it, maybe mm. navigate successfully. This was this was the enterprise of, of ancient Egypt, is being able to successfully navigate into the into the afterlife again, which is not a begin, which is not an end, but a beginning. This is how the mystery religions always talk about about death and befriending death and confronting all mortality. Like I'm not sure if AI will be able to 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 plumb those secrets the way that we've been doing for all these thousands of years. That's interesting. <clears throat> I don't think. Well, why wouldn't it be able to? I mean, it, what it's essentially doing, well, all human beings, everyone that is listening to this and everyone who isn't, you're, you're essentially riding on the work of the people that came before you. We're, we're all speaking a language that other people invented. We're using mathematics that other people invented. 
We, you know, we live in structures that other people invented. There's been just this massive sea of human beings before us that have innovated and created. But if AI can have access to everything they've ever learned and everything they've ever done and have an understanding of biology and of subatomic science at a level that the the average human being is just not capable of. Mm -hmm. Maybe it could understand a pattern that we've missed. Maybe it can understand a code that we've missed. That this whole thing is like there's there's some sort of an underlying code to the entire universe. Mm. And that it all works together. And you're experiencing it as a human being riding the subway, driving in your car, going to work. You're experiencing this very minute realm of this overall experience that is all working together through this code that's creating everything. Hmm. I think AI could figure that out. <laughs> I think we're, we're very limited because we're talking about our own experience and we're talking about our own biological mortality. So we mm -hmm. have this window of time to sort things out. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what is that quote? Enlightenment is possible within your lifetime. That we, we have this very small window. Hmm. It's 100 years if you're lucky. And during that 100-year period, you're, you're asked a lot if with this primitive monkey mind to try to figure things out. But if you didn't have that, if you didn't have that thing looming over you, maybe you'd have a more objective assessment of what's actually going on, or what this species is actually doing, mm. like what it's here for. Mm. What is the, what's, your, what's your takeaway on our biological mortality and what we're doing here in light of your most profound DMT experiences? Oh, uh, it would be just guessing and talking shit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, for us, in our experience, I think the best thing you could do is spread as much positivity as possible in every way you can. Be as charitable as possible. Be as nice as possible. Spread as much positivity as possible. That seems to be like a valuable lesson that I get from all those experiences. But again, we're, everything we're doing is based on the biological limitations of our consciousness and our life experiences. Everything we're doing is based on like who we are and who we think we are and what, what, what meaning it has for us that we're, we're here right now. But if you, didn't, you weren't burdened down by all these biological limitations, if you were burdened by this uh, existential angst and this fear of death and, and the, this... Re, this we have this desire to figure it out, like to have like, oh, this is what's going to happen. We have this like this this desire to have an answer to almost the unanswerable. Mm. What if AI didn't have those? It's not going to have those problems. It's just going to have information. It's just going to have just pure information with no ego, no desire to survive, no no greed, no desire to reproduce, no no envy. It's going to be a fascinating thing once it does happen because it might be able to like quickly figure out a lot of things that we've been burdened by. But we're looking at these things through the limitations of our biological experience and through the ego, which tells us that this biological experience is uniquely important. Mm. Everyone thinks that they are uniquely important. Mm. But yet there's all this evidence that you're not. Like you're, <laughs> you're a part of this very bizarre thing. But this very bizarre thing as it interacts with each other is very psychedelic. Like if you weren't a human and you didn't 
and you you had no idea what what human life is and you were some other kind of consciousness and you took a drug and the drug led you to experience human life in a big city. You'd be like, this is crazy. <laughs> what a drug. If you just saw the lights going back and forth on a highway and how similar they look to like blood flowing through arteries. And you see these things that are getting constructed. It's like these growths on the earth that this being is creating. I'm like, what is this fucking wild species doing? You know, I think we would have a a more objective sense of it. I've said this too many times, but I'll say it one more time. I think we're here to make things. I think our curiosity is all about innovation. That's the the primary function that this species has. If you looked at it from afar, you'd say, well, what is this thing doing? Oh, it's making better stuff every year. It always does that. No matter what it does, it makes unless it nukes itself into the Stone Age, which is always a threat because the better stuff that it makes is often weapons. And it often gets better at making money by utilizing those weapons. So it keeps doing that, which is what you're seeing all over the world right now. Mm. But I think if you looked at, like, the one thing it's doing, it's making better things. And it's so wrapped up in buying those better things. Materialism is so rampant. And everybody, despite what you have being more than enough, you want more and better and new things. And that fuels consumerism. And consumerism fuels more innovation. And it's like baked into the mentality, sort of like, I don't know if bees know exactly what they're doing when they're making a beehive, but mm. they all make beehives. You know, they're all, they're all doing that same thing. And human beings, what we're doing is that we're, we're at least working towards buying these things that someone's making. Don't you think human creativity is what makes us uniquely human on top of all that? Our ability to, to fashion things from nothing, mm-hmm. uh, to create music and beauty and mm-hmm. art. Um, like yeah. you, look, you look at those those scratch marks from 300,000 years ago, and then you go into the painted caves 30,000 years ago, uh, and then you follow the production of art throughout our species. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like that's I feel like that's the kind of thing that AI won't be able to resolve for us. The, Perhaps the process of what it means to engage in a creative act and pr- to produce something that the whole species. Mm. can resonate with well it would would, the question would be why would it want to do that Mm. you know if it doesn't have those kind of feelings that you have when you hear a great song or see a great painting like why would it want to do that right Mm. and why do we want to do that why do do we do that for each other well you you talk about creativity and and i think creativity is the fuel of innovation all things that we use today whether it's a cell phone or a laptop or Whatever it is, all of those things came out of the imagination. Mm. All those things came out of someone's mind. Mm. And I've always wondered, I wonder if ideas are life forms, like a type of life form, like a thing, an energy that manifests itself in the creation of actual physical objects. Mm. And that it, it gets into your mind and it interacts with your being and it talks you into making a coffee pot. I mean, doesn't it make sense? All these things that we have, everything in this room came out of someone's mind. That's, everything. See, that, that, that's where I think we have the edge on, on, on AI. Mm. And I think that we don't understand the genius, the divine genius of where that creativity comes from. I, I collect different quotes from like musicians um, talking about the creative process. Mm. Jamie, I sent you a couple. Um, there's in the, in the email, there's one from John Frusciante. He's the guitarist for Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like, I love listening to musicians talk about where music comes from mm. and where inspiration comes from 
because I think it's like it's one lens that we can use to think about the creative act in general. Like it, it may start with music, it goes to everything that's here, it goes to the art of a conversation, it goes to comedy, it goes to the way we make children, by the way, which is a very, a very creative act and something that comes naturally to most of us. Like I think that's what makes us human is that this, this, uh, this ability to, to translate something that extends beyond our physical bodies and then to embody it, whatever that it is, Frushanti calls it the force, and then to make something of it, something mm. that, that, that can resonate with the community. I think that's something that AI will be able to do in fits and starts, but I'm not sure that we understand the process. And that's why I think about the process of life and death, too. That, that's why I think that the thing that makes us human is the way that we engage with those invisible forces. Mm. Yeah. The way we engage with those invisible forces. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what's it's unique about humans, for sure, on Earth. Jamie, do you have that quote from, from John? Yeah, but... What is the quote? It's a saying. I mean, it's a video. I don't know if you wanted to read it or play it or what. Yeah, you can play it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is uh, expressing itself through our existence. I don't believe that a musical idea starts in your brain. I believe it starts at a place before that that we don't have any direct contact with. And I believe that everything that we do, everything that we create, is nature expressing itself the same way that when a flower grows out of the ground or a tree grows out of the ground, it's nature expressing itself. And you might say that the tree is expressing itself by the way its branches move out, but it's the force that drives nature. The tree is the visible thing that appears to our senses, but I don't at all believe it's the source of why everything is perpetuated all the time, you know? Force that created us. Hmm. That makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, well, most comedians will tell you that jokes come to them like like a gift. Like your your mind just like a door opens up and like, here it is. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow. Oh, my God, what a great idea. Like these ideas just pop in your head. You see, and sometimes you see things and you describe them and you like, mm -hmm, and you, you the, the the idea will come from that. But sometimes ideas just come to you. They don't even, you don't they don't even feel like you don't feel responsible for them because it's not like you dug a hole. Like this is the hole I dug. You do write. You sit down and write, right? You yeah. Do, you do fi the physical act of summoning the muse, which is how Pressfield talks about it in the War of Art, which is a great way to because it is that. Whether or not the muse is real, mm. if you treat it as if it's real, it will show up. Hmm. Like if you show up every day and you write, you say, I'm, from 9 a.m. to noon every day, I sit in front of my computer and I write. If you do that, the ideas will come. They will come to you. That's crazy. Well, where are they coming from? Where is that? Yeah, what is that Do you thing? think AI can figure that out? I don't, I don't think. I'm not sure if we can figure that out. I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. Like what is the unique inspiration for ideas and our desire to pursue them like what what is it i think that's part of what makes us innovate and that's part of like what you know if you were looking at us from afar mm. you go what is this species doing it's making things and mm. how do you make things without creativity you don't you you wouldn't you mm. would have no desire to so there's the question about ai it's like can you program that desire to innovate into a thing without all of the primate characteristics that we possess. We seem to have this innate ability to do it in a way that we know will resonate with people. Have you ever mm -hmm. like have you ever read AI jokes? Yeah. Do you they're, think not, they... they're not inspired. <laughs> but they're real young. It's like a joke from a five year old. Yeah. Five year old tells you a joke, it's like <laughs> my daughter's really young. One of her favorite jokes was, What kind of tree grows in your hand? <laughs> 
I go, I don't know. She goes, a palm tree. <laughs> <laughs> and she'd have this big, long punchline, a palm tree. When you're five, it's hilarious. And I thought it was really funny. I'm like, that's a solid joke. But like, that's a five-year-old joke. If you try to do that on stage at the mothership on a Saturday night, they'd be yeah. like, really? You know? <laughs> that's so, kind of my point, man. Yeah. So where do your jokes come from? But AI is young, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Is AI is a five-year-old telling jokes. When AI becomes a PhD from Princeton, you're going to be dealing with a very different thing. Hmm. You know, as AI becomes, I just can't imagine that the whatever it is that makes creativity, because creativity is absolutely inspired by our predecessors hmm. as well. There's a lot of, uh, I could speak to comedy, there's a lot of styles of comedy that you go, oh, that guy's clearly a Richard Pryor fan. Or that guy's, you know, he's, he's definitely been influenced by Kinnison. He's definitely been influenced by Jerry Seinfeld. There's something that we carry with us from the people, that, and you see it in music as yeah. well. You know, Stevie Ray Vaughan, clearly influenced by Hendrix. So you see this as well. But it's just, couldn't it just do that? Couldn't it just absorb all these patterns and then come up with unique patterns that it knows will resonate with people? Like if you, I think you could probably create some fucking jamming pop songs that are just entirely AI created. And you, you could use all the best voices because you would just be able to voice swap them. You could have you doing them. You could be singing the next Lizzo song. <laughs> it's, you know, it can do weird things now. And some of those weird things are going to resonate with people and become very successful. And then it'll figure out what those things are. Hmm. Okay, well, so this Drake song that I made, is, was this got, you know, four million listens on Spotify. So now we'll do this. And now we'll make one like that. And now I'll add this. And now I'll do something that people have never figured out before and hmm. do that. So it might be able to do the same thing that cre creativity is capable of accomplishing. But it won't be done with the same sort of spirit and soul. So it won't be able to resonate with us the same way as, say, like a Janis Joplin song. There's like there's something to like Coulter Wall's voice. There's certain people that they have a thing in them. Like you can't you, know, you can't fake that. Whatever yeah. the fuck that is. Like there's a word for that. They call it a frisson. Have you heard of that? No. Frisson. It's the it's the term when you get like goosebumps mm. from from music or when when music affects you in such a way. Yeah. Like I I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think humans at the moment are much better at producing that effect than 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 AI. Oh, for sure. You, do you know who Coulter Wall is? Mm -mm. Jamie, play Kate McCannon. There's this song. Jamie turned me on to this song. And this dude is singing. He wrote and sang the song when he was 21 years old. And you, you listen and you go, what the fuck? This, it's very rare that I'll listen to a song and just go, what the fuck? But listen to this. Okay. Raven is a wicked bird His wings are black as sin And he floats outside my prison window Mocking those within And he sings to me real low His 
Sounds like a 50-year-old rancher. <laughs> when I first met 60 even. This is the music video that goes along with it. Said he had himself a dark-haired daughter, long green eyes. And when she and I did she was bathing in the creek Prettiest girl in the whole damn holler That ain't no lie Good luck, AI <laughs> yeah. You ain't gonna make this You never think of this That's the point Yeah, That's it's not gonna point. think But why That's is this, point. is this special to us? So, what we are is special to us, because we are us, hmm. but it'll be the next thing. We have this knack for producing things that we know will resonate. With us. With our species, yeah. And what do those things do? They, they motivate movement. Hmm. They motivate creativity. They inspire you. They fuel you. They're, they're a, a strange drug. It's an audible drug, an audio drug. Like it's great music is certainly a drug. Like mm. you and I got to see Guns N' Roses live, oh, which man. is pretty fucking dope, <laughs> right? That was pretty dope in Athens. Have you told that story? No, I think I did. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, you came back to the table. I went and, to the bathroom. Yeah, and you came back and you said, "Oh my God, Axl Rose is here." Yeah, and I was like, "Whoa, where is he at?" And you're like, "He's right over there." So you had to walk by him. You know, I tried to talk to him, right? Yeah, you tried. To- <laughs> He tried to say hi. It didn't go so well. Um, I, I saw him when I left to the bathroom. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw him with a with a woman, and I thought, "Oh, that that's that, that's Axel." And I went to the bathroom, and I'd had a margarita and a glass of wine because <laughs> <laughs> because you peer pressured me into drinking over dinner. Which oh, I, peer pressure's <laughs> my fault. Look how I'm responsible for you. You're a grown I'm man. I'm a grown sir. man. So I made, the, I made the choice to have a glass of wine with dinner. And so I was feeling pretty good. And so I, I, I saw him at the table. So on the way back, I'm thinking, I, got, I, got a, I can't not say hi. And so like in my mind, I have like a tuxedo and slicked hair and a, and a martini uh, <laughs> asking if, <laughs> excuse me, Axel, we, we need to chat. But I think like it's not impossible that I said Mr. Rose, like excuse me, <laughs> Mr. Rose. Uh, and, and the woman there was like, uh, just, I mean, she just like she didn't even say anything. She just waved, waved me away. And I thought, mm. okay, I mean, I, I would do the same thing if, if I were Axel. And so I went back to the table, deject it, and let you know that Axel was still sitting there. Yes. And then my dilemma was, do I say hi? Because I'm like, I don't know if he knows me. I don't know if he knows who I am. You know, I don't want to be an idiot. Yeah. I don't want to, hi, Axel. Like, the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I, tried, I tried that. Yeah. Especially if it's like my first time meeting Axel Rose. I've been a fan of his for so long. You got to think, I used to work out to Welcome to the Jungle in the 80s. So that guy's been famous since I was like 21 years old. Hmm. I, I 22. When, how, when, when did Welcome to the Jungle come out? 
Appetite for Destruction. Yeah. That's, when was uh, that? 87. Or was 80, it? I think it was 87. I remember very clearly being in the gym the first time I heard it. I was lifting weights at this place. And uh, welcome to the jungle. I was like, oh, my God, what a fucking song. 87. 1987. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember um, standing on the pool table of my neighbor, uh, Ryan, down the street and playing with wiffle ball bats and air guitaring Welcome to the Jungle. <laughs> when I was eight. So luckily he knew who I was. Yeah. He actually knew my comedy. He was asking me questions yeah. about some jokes, and I loved this bit. And I was like, oh, God. Because you went in with confidence, by the way. You, you forget that part, dude. We, we walked in, and like I did the wrong thing. And you walked in with total confidence, and you stuck your arm into the booth and said hi. Like You didn't give him a chance not to say hi. Yeah, I, is that what I did? You were I very... was drunk, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just got lucky he knew who I was. You went, it was full confidence. Yeah. With the Joe Rogan tattoos, you went right into his face and said, hey, man, hey, man. And like he stopped for a second because it was odd. And he's like, oh, hey, man. Yeah. He knew you, he knew you immediately. That was, ooh, what yeah. a relief that was. Because you don't know. Yeah. You don't know if someone fucks with you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's weird. It's, it's weird to like assume that this very famous person knows who you are. He was super cool. He was very cool. And he asked what you were doing there. Yeah. And you said, I'm here with my family. And he said, oh, this is your family, pointing to me. <laughs> 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 You're like, no, this is Brian. You're very nice. Like, he wrote this thing. He's a, he's a, he's a writer. Um, and you told him the hypothesis. And Axel, like, he gave me the best T-shirt for the book. He's like, okay, cool. So everybody got high and made democracy. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. It's pretty much what you think, Axel. Pretty much. Yeah, and then he invited us to the show, which was super dope. And But, you know, that what I was getting to is, like, when you hear, like, welcome to the jungle, your whole body yeah. goes, wow. It's like a drug. Yeah. It's a drug that human beings have invented for ourselves. There's something about music that it's like music when you're tired, like say if you're on a treadmill or something, you're tired and a good song comes on, you're like, fuck yeah. It gives you an extra gear. Mm. Inspiration through music is very much like uh, a performance enhancing drug. Mm. Mm. It mm. does something to you. It motivates people to dance. Mm. Motiv you know, when someone hears a good song, like, fuck that, let's get on the dance floor. It's like m the music like does something to you, your being. It interfaces with whatever the fuck you are in some very, very special way. But it only does it to us. Like, why would the universe think that that's interesting? Like, does it? Don't animals dance to human music? There must, there must be videos of animals dancing to human music. There's definitely some videos of dogs dancing, but I've always wondered if they've been trained to dance. Why does that make you smile? Because ah, it's cool. It's cool to see dogs dance. I wish my dog could dance. But they, you know... But animals are so, especially dogs in particular, they're so tuned into people mm. in some weird way. Like, my mm. dog understands English. Like, really? I could say, yeah, I, I should have brought him today. But everyone was at the house and he was having fun. There's a deer in our backyard. There was a lot of drama today. There was a deer with a broken leg in my backyard. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, some poor little buck, a little young buck. And... Um, I was uh, get it was in the morning, like seven o'clock in the morning. Everyone's getting ready to go to school. I made a cup of coffee. I uh, I let the dog back in, and he hadn't seen it, so he's like chilling on the back porch. And uh, I let him in, and I look over there. And it looks like a fucking statue. It's a buck just standing there. I mean, like forty feet from me. And I'm like, why is there a deer there? And then I close the door. Oh, girls, 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 come here, check this out. And then I look at the way he's standing. And go, ooh, his back leg's broken. Mm. 
he's got uh, his shin is fractured. His back, like where your your shin would be, mm. it's bending back the wrong way. It's it's broken, and so we called animal protection, and they didn't know what to do, and so we're we're literally trying to find him an animal veterinarian to fix this deer's leg, which is just so crazy because mm. I shoot deers and I eat them. <laughs> But, <laughs> but do you feel bad for this one? <laughs> for that one, it's like he's first. He's very young. I would never shoot him. He's a little young fella. He's just. It looks like a yearling. Like he's just got his horns for the first time, hmm. and he's like really confused and he's hurt and he can't. And he's in my yard because I guess he's like safer there. And so the dog finally does find him. And when the dog finds him, he's, he's just like kind of jumping around him and bouncing and like, you want to play? Like, what, and the deer can't run. So he's just standing there going, hey, are you going to eat me? Like, what's going on here? And it was it was very interesting. But he know, like my dog, I can say, come on, man, cut the shit, get inside. Mm. And he goes inside. Mm. Or I can say, don't go out this door. We're going to go to the other door. Okay. He just goes to the other door. Like, I can say things like that. Like, he knows. I can say, not that door, dude, the other one. And he'll start going towards the other door. It's very weird. I can say, you want to watch TV? And he goes into the TV room. And, like, he waits for me to plop up on the couch, and then he hops up next to me. Like, he, he speaks English, or he knows English. He just can't talk. It's a golden? Yeah. Yeah. So animals, whatever the intelligence that they have, like, whatever the fuck they're tuning into, it's a, a, a comprehension of language, I think, beyond just, like, saying words that they respond to, like, you want to go for a walk? You know, mm-hmm. when the dog pops up, they're just recognizing the word walk. Now, I think they understand, like, speech, they understand tone. They understand what you mean. They understand when you're in trouble. When they're in trouble. Did you? Did you fucking shit on the carpet, dude? You know, like, <laughs> did I? And they run away. They know things, but they don't seem to give a fuck about music. You know, dogs don't. They won't. They won't calm down if you play calming music. Supposedly they do, and unfortunately now that's in my fucking YouTube algorithm because uh, he was freaked out because of the um, uh, thunderstorms yeah. that were happening. He was like, yeah. and so uh, my wife said, "Oh, there's this music that you can play for the dog, and it calms them." So there's YouTube channels. So now every time I turn on my YouTube app, I get calming dog songs. <laughs> I don't even know if they work. How does anybody know if they work? Ask your dog. Yeah. He's not going to answer. That's the problem. But the 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 act of moving the body mm. to music mm. is uniquely human. Yeah. I mean, I, what other animals dance to music? Let's find that out. Chimpanzees don't? I don't think so. Boy, they're smart as shit, though. Yeah. They're spooky smart. When you watch them solve puzzles for candy. Mm-hmm. You know, they gave uh, chimps money. They taught them that if they... Take this money, this thing, these tokens, and give it to this person or put it in this thing. They would give them candy. You know the first thing they did was? Mm. They gave it to the female chimps, and they had sex with them. (laughs) They, like, immediately engaged in prostitution. Where do you find this stuff? Oh, that's old. That's an old study. That's from a long time ago. I've just been always fascinated by chimpanzees. I mean, they're one of the most bizarre relatives to us that's still around you've seen chimp nation yeah on that amazing right like god it's so fascinating yeah but i don't think they dance do you think they do i think they have rhythm yeah yeah they they move around there's videos of them um doing some some ritual oh i think ritual some rhythm so what is this look at he's break dancing (laughs) (laughs) but that's dancing man good time that's dancing is that what he's doing? Is there music playing? <laughs> but is that real? Is that the real music? 
That seems like that's added after the fact. <laughs> yeah, he's doing fast steps. Look how long his arms are. Isn't that crazy? It's just crazy that that's we come from the same original root. We it branched in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, but seven million years ago. That's what's fascinating is that they're still here. They're still here in that form, which is the, the dumbest anti-evolution question ever. If we came from monkeys, why are monkeys still here? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Well, yeah. why are amoebas still here, sir? Yeah. You know, why is anything still here? Why are we still here? Yeah, well, but some things can function in the state they are, and they don't need to adapt. That's why crocodiles, are, they've been the same forever. You know, sharks existed before trees. Hmm. Sharks predate trees. Sharks are so old. They've been along for so long. I think they're 50 million years older than trees. But trees are pretty old to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think sharks are somewhere in the neighborhood of like 300-something million years old, and trees are 50 million years less. What is it? Yeah, there it is. <clears throat> Sharks have been swimming our oceans much longer than trees have been swaying in the breeze on land. The birth of trees on Earth is believed to have occurred roughly 370, 390 million years ago. That makes sharks at least 10 million years older than trees. Oh, so I was off by 40 million. But yeah, older than trees. You missed your years. calling as an evolutionary biologist. Not really. No, no, I just like interesting information. <laughs> but especially about things like that, you know, like sharks. The cleanup crew of the ocean. Hmm. That's a like. How do you manage a just just vast literal sea of life that moves in three D space? Hmm. It just moves all over the place, and things are going to die. And what happens to them? Sharks. This massive beast that has to keep moving, or it dies. And it's so old, and it, it's designed just for killing and eating, and it has rows of replaceable teeth. And the only bones that it has at all are this massive jawbone and these ridiculous razor-sharp saws that just slice things in half. And it just roams the ocean looking to consume. Have you ever had a shark encounter? I've had sharks bite fish off my line. I've never, like, had a shark encounter. I was like, Jesus, this is a shark. Hmm. No. Um, have I seen them in the wild? I do not know. I don't think I have. I don't think I've seen a shark like swimming through the water. I've seen a lot of dolphins, a lot of whales. Hmm. I don't think I've ever had a physical encounter with a shark. Have not you dreamed I... about sharks? Not really. What are you, a psychologist? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? The guy's a shrink now. What happened? <laughs> Where the, where'd regular Brian go? <laughs> I'm curious about Tell your mind. Me. I dream about wolves. That's oh, I'm getting somewhere with this. Yeah. yeah, I dream about wolves a lot. Really? Yeah. What do you dream about? Running from wolves. You're running from wolves. Yeah. Why are wolves chasing you? I think <laughs> wolves chase people a lot. I think some people got away, and I think that genetic memory gets imparted in some folks. Mm. I have a high percentage of Neanderthal DNA. You know when they do, do you know that twenty three in me, yeah, fifty seven percent more than regular people. Wow. Yeah. So you were chased by lots of wolves. I think ancient people. I think, I think most ancient people. That's what the big bad wolf and through, like Little Red Riding Hood. All those ancient stories of wolves were all because they were killing people. Mm. Like wolves, wolves have always preyed on human beings. It's always been a part of human existence until we eradicated them, and now we're bringing them back. Which is <laughs> <laughs> to me wild. Like, have you guys thought this through? 
Like, there's a reason why we were so scared of them forever. But then we forgot be, forgot what it's like to be scared of them. We're like, oh, well, if they did get too many, we'll just kill them again. <laughs> like, no, you won't. How do we domesticate them in the first you place? You don't domesticate wolves. How did it happen? You make dogs. And, but how did, where did dogs come from? Bitch-ass wolves. <clears throat> That's what it is. Bitch-ass wolves that were willing to come near us in the fire, and then we give them a little food, and then they, they realize that they could be our friend. They can get food. They don't have to hunt. And then we use them to protect the outer perimeter and to keep bears out and things like that and cats away from people. Mm-hmm. And that if the wolves stayed close, things didn't want to get near the wolves, and so they would avoid us. And as long as we kept that kind of a relationship, you know, they've done these uh, studies with foxes where they've had wild foxes. And in a small period of time, every time they had an aggressive fox at all, they killed that fox. And they kept these domesticated foxes. And over time, their ears flopped, their eyes got bigger. They became more appealing to us, more submissive. They basically became dogs over a very short period of time. See if you find that fox study. It's very interesting. That's probably what happened with wolves. Mm. I think the wolves that realize, like, hey, you know, it's hard out there, you know, running a pack and being an alpha and getting cast out and, like, Maybe I could just get near these other things mm. and I could get a little bit of their leftovers. Like if they do really well, like maybe they get a buffalo or something like that, they, they kill a bison, that's a large animal. They're not going to be able to eat it all. They're going to leave like a little bit for me and they're probably not going to eat the bones and wolves crush bones. And so like maybe they sort of develop this sort of relationship because wolves are very curious of people too. And they come near people and they're fascinated by people. But the problem is when they want to eat you. And that does happen, and it's always happened. It, it, it's always happened throughout history. In fact, in World War I, there was actually a ceasefire between the Russians and the Germans because so many of them were getting killed by wolves hmm. that they decided to stop shooting each other and kill the wolves and then go back to killing each other. <laughs> you ever heard about that one? No. Yeah. Well, because it's trench warfare, right? Yeah. So people are getting shot, and you know, when you're getting shot, you're, you're dying in this trench and sometimes these guys would just get overwhelmed by wolves like wolves would find them in there and just tear them apart so imagine you're you know you're in trench warfare in world war one and you're hearing in the middle of the night people screaming and you're just getting torn apart by wolves they would send out parties and like search parties and mm. you know they would find no one would come back and then they would go out and they'd find a boot with a human foot in it and like mm. what the fuck and they realized, oh my God, these wolves are killing people. And they were in large packs because they were feeding on the bodies from the war. You know, the war back then is yeah. just unbelievably brutal. It's very close range. You know, you're, you're not dealing with you know, long distance missiles. You're dealing mm. with people like literally creeping up on each other and shooting each other with rifles. Mm. It's horrible, horrible shit. And they're not that good at killing people. So a lot of times it kills you slow. And so these people are dying in these trenches and getting eaten by wolves, and the wolves decide that they're a primary food source. Now, why would I chase caribou and reindeer when I can just eat people? Hmm. <clears throat> this explains your strange dreams. Yeah. Well, I think human beings have always been afraid of monsters, right? Mm. What is that? Like children that, like um, Rupert Sheldrake has talked about this. Children that grow up in New York City are not afraid of uh, things that they probably should be afraid of. You know, they're not afraid of child molesters. Mm. They're not afraid of, they don't know mm. what that is, right? Mm. But they, they know what a monster is. Mm. Like a monster is in their head. 
like kids are scared of the dark. It's because of cats. Like we used to get eaten by cats all the time. So like a giant part of being a an ancient hominid was probably avoiding predation from cats. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been so many, even eagles. They found uh, evidence of uh, human beings that were killed by like that was that big eagle that lived in uh, New Zealand. They think they the reason why that thing went extinct. The, I think it's called the host eagle. It was an enormous eagle that they think probably preyed on human beings. Hmm. Which was like, what a fucked up way to go. A hand glider comes down and takes you out with its talons. Like a bird the size of a hand glider. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was looking up the Russian it's the Russian fox yeah. experiment. I was finding a bunch of articles about it, like we've talked about before, but then one of them I said said that there was a new study, which this says is from 2019, that might not counter it specifically, but has a different understanding of what was happening maybe hmm. i was trying to read through it and it just says that like what his final result was might not actually be what was happening with the domestication well let's let's read this part right here it says the russian farm fox experiments best known experimental study in animal domestication by subjecting a population of foxes to selection for tameness alone Dmitry Belyev um, generated foxes that possess a suite of characteristics that mimics those found across domesticated species. This domestication syndrome has been a central focus of research into the biological pathways modified during domestication. Here we chart the origins of, uh, how do you say his name? Belyev, you think? How, you would know better than me, man. How would, how would you say that name? Belyaev. Belyaev. Foxes in eastern Canada and critical and critically assess the appearance of domestication syndrome traits across animal domesticates. Uh, our results suggest that both the conclusions of the farm fox experiment and the ubiquity of domestication syndrome have been overstated. To understand the process of domestication requires a more comprehensive approach based on essential adaptations to human-modified environments. So what they did, though, that this is interesting. So they're saying there's, like, more to it than just this study. But what they did do in this study was pretty fascinating. So starting with 30 male and 100 female silver foxes from the Soviet fur farms, he selectively bred foxes who responded less fearfully when a hand was inserted into their cage. The oft-repeated narrative was that just with just 10 generations of selection on, on wild foxes, he produced foxes who craved human attention and exhibited a range of unconnected phenotypes, including floppy ears, turned-up tails, piebald coats, diestrous reproductive cycles, and later, shorter and wider faces. Bayev... Did I say it right? Belyaev. Proposed that the selection of behavior altered the regulation of multiple interconnected systems that produced the traits Darwin described. Hmm. In 10 generations. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So in whatever generations from campfire to poodle, Hmm. campfire to Shibu Inu, Hmm. from campfire to Chihuahua, Hmm. we did that. Slowly but surely, over time... But that's, you know, the, the root of all, I mean, they only found that out over the last few decades. They used to think that dogs were probably the ancestors of, their ancestors were probably wild hominid, wild, wild um, dogs rather, wild canids. But then they found out, no, no, it's not wild canines, it's fucking wolves. They all came from wolves, all of them. All dogs came from wolves. It was like, what? 
A pug? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, selective breeding over time created something barbaric, something monstrous. This is kind of uh, necessary, too, I think, to know. What does it this say? Part. It says that it's uh, misunderstood that he found these were like wild foxes mm. when he first got them, and they were not. Right, they're fur, so they fur farm foxes. Yeah. yeah, that's what they were saying, right? What was the misrepresentation? That people think that he'd found... Uh, uh, oh, that he walked, that caught them. They were them. wild, yeah, or whatever, yeah. Oh, so they, they were already bred for furs. <clears throat> purpose-bred, so, Yeah, purpose-bred. So they probably already were subject to a certain amount of selective breeding, right? I, would, I mean, yeah, if you're trying to breed it for a fur, then you're yeah. looking for a Pacific coat and... Yeah, so they probably, yeah, they're they probably, yeah, fed them, like, domesticated, mm. de like, you ever seen domesticated deer just eating out of people's hands? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a th weird thing with the domesticated deer world. Do you know this? No. I come here to learn <clears throat> about animals. So... This deer right here that's on the table, that yeah. is the first deer I ever shot. That's a wild mule deer yes. from Montana. Yeah, that's from the Missouri Breaks. Wild country. I mean, like, it's where you, you see homesteads yeah. out there that are, like, from, the, you know, the 1700s mm. and 1800s where people just didn't survive. And they had these just old buildings that were falling apart. They're, they're littered out there. There's a bunch of them out there. It's a really fascinating place. But that is a typical wild deer, like a few years old. He's probably like four years old or something like that. They make deers in these deer farms where they feed them these protein tablets. And so like a big deer, a really big deer is a 200-inch deer. And what that means is the antlers of the deer, like there's big bodies that will be about 300 pounds for like a mule deer or a really big one. Their bodies are big, but then their antlers are this massive fucking structure on their head of bone that grows quicker than anything in the wild. It is the quickest bone that grows that we're aware of in all of nature is an elk or a stag or, or even deer. This shit grows so quick. It's just a couple months and all of a sudden mm. this mat, they, they drop their horns at the, uh, when, you know, the end, in the, during the winter. And then these new ones in the spring just rip, and within months they grow. So with these farms, they're taking these animals and then giving them these preposterous diets that would just never exist in the wild. And they have a deer with like 350-inch antlers like that. Jeez. They're just g gross. It's just weird. It's weird what they're doing. So they're selectively breeding for genetics. And then on top of that, they're feeding them this crazy diet. And then they're letting them loose in these high fence areas and people shoot them. And they hang them on their wall like a trophy. And almost all hunters have the same reaction. I was like, ugh. Mm. They're gross. Mm. It's like something gross about it. Yeah. It's like something about it. But people who are like, look at that 300-inch deer I shot. Like people that don't give a fuck, that's what they want. They want the biggest antlers. So it's a very controversial thing in like the wildlife conservation community. And it's also a way that CWD gets spread, unfortunately. How? Because these wild deer come in contact with these deer that have been captive. Mm. And these deer that are captive may be carrying CWD. And then they put these deer out in the wild. They hop fences, they get out there, and then CWD spreads. And it's a real issue, and especially with whitetails. And they're seen in mule deer as well. But it's chronic wasting disease is what mm. it is, and it's horrific. And it their, their saliva uh, gets on plants, and then with other animals eat the plants, and they get it. Much like 
how uh, bison give cattle brucellosis. Like ca- cattle farmers have a real problem with wild bison getting onto their range because if the the bison contain brucellosis, then their entire their the, all of their flock could they could all have brucellosis and die. So this is the thing with CWD, and a lot of it comes out of this captive uh, canid or captive. Uh, uh, deer, uh, there's like farms that they. It's like that. It's a whole business, this business of raising these captive deer. It's real weird. It's very unnatural, because you do, and then they let them loose. Like there's with these big stupid antlers. It's just, <laughs> you know, like if you see an elk, a wild elk's antlers, like that. That is there because they're they're fighting each other and they're smashing heads and. The bigger the antlers, the more impressive they are for mm. the females, and the more they can fight off the males. And it, it's a, there's an evolutionary reason for that. For this, it's just some freak that's been given steroids and a, a bunch of protein. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how we got to that. I mean, me neither. I'm trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just we're talking about domestication. Yeah, domestication and its effects. Yeah, the the wolf one is one of the most fascinating ones. Now that we know that all dogs come from wolves, yeah, it's really interesting to watch how species will adapt over time, and then wonder what is happening to us. Because clearly, this very similar thing is happening to us. Yeah, and if anything should remind us, or in any way, if we're similar to any animal, in the variety of sizes and shapes. Like it would be the dogs. Hmm. Like human beings vary so widely, hmm. and that's and we are domesticated. We're self-domesticated, you know, but we're clearly domesticated. And that process started a long time ago. Remember the mm-hmm. homona lady yes. that I showed you? So what they know about them is they had um, they had canines, um, like you and me, obviously. But so in the primate world, the canines are much bigger. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because when you when you bare your teeth, you're meant to be threatening. Yes. Obviously, so what they realized about homonaleri is that they had smaller canines. So instead of using them to to threaten others, what they realized is that they were such a size that they were using them to smile. Whoa. So they they were smiling. They, they were the first ones to show their teeth as a nice thing. As a nice thing, they were smiling three hundred thousand years ago. Wow. Wow. So. Why wouldn't they have canines? Chimps have canines. Gorillas have canines. And they kind of use their teeth to smile a little, too. Mm. Chimps seem to. They seem like when they're having fun, they sh- they, when they're laughing, they seem like chimps seem to laugh, right? Yeah. Well, like, ha, ha, ha. And they, they show their teeth. And it doesn't seem like they always show their teeth in a threatening way. Hmm. Right? Like, that dude's smiling. <laughs> For sure that dude's smiling. I mean, come on. Look at him. Looks like a school photo. He's 100% smiling, yeah. Yeah, it seems like they, they smile. And they have canines. Yeah, they got canines. They're, they're certainly larger than ours. But it's also like, if you saw that, like, is that a smile? I mean, I don't know what the fuck that is. I'm getting out of there. It's ambiguous. Get, click on that one with the waist up right above you. Right, Yeah, look at that. I I mean, Jesus Christ. (laughs) You imagine seeing that in the wild? You'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so (laughs) fucked. That's terrifying. That's not a smile. Happy he found dinner, I think. I don't know about (laughs) Yeah, he's ready to fuck you up. Yeah, that's what a crazy thing. That just, the fact that they still exist Mm -hmm. is, we're so fortunate to be able to observe and watch these 
very human-like patterns that we see in terms of like their social structures and how they manage them and how there is like one leader and how they'll branch off into separate groups. They even wage war on each other. Mm. They fight over territories and food. Mm. It's so interesting. It's so interesting because they're so like us, but then so not. Like that thing is kind of like that. Show that picture again. It's kind of like us, but God, that thing's terrifying. <laughs> I mean, look at his face. If he was mad at you, oh my God, that would be so horrible. <laughs> and their eyes. And some of them uh, have white around the eyes. That was something they showed cool. in the, uh, the Chimp Nation documentary, yeah. which is really interesting too, because he's got animal eyes. I mean, he's terrifying, this one right here. Mm. But some of them, they have almost like, you can almost like, you look into their eyes and you see like emotion. Mm. Very fascinating species. Hmm. Do, have you uh, studied uh, at all the the Hobbit people from the island of Flores? The Floresiensis. Yeah, yeah. That's another <clears throat> that's another strange one, like Homo lady. because it, it it disrupts the the narrative about the the doubling of the human brain size, mm -hmm. as if there's this constantly escalating trend in one direction. Yeah. So you see the Floresiensis and the lady occupy these these strange places, yeah. questioning whether or not it's it's the physical brain or something else. That imputes intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. What about the hobbits? Well, the, it's interesting that they coexisted with humans because right. they they're fairly recent, right? right? What what is the timeline for those? Uh, definitely when Sapiens was around. Yeah. Uh, what is the what's the um, most recent carbon dating on those uh, Homo floresiensis? I think it's less than a hundred thousand years. And they think those things had tools. Hmm. They think um, it, there was a lot of dispute as to whether or not they were just misformed or deformed human beings. There was a lot of dispute as to whether or not this was a unique branch of the human chain, but they think it is now. Hmm. And they think they're, all, they're probably also subject to island dwarfism, you know, like uh, mammals are. But for some reason, with reptiles, it goes the other way. What's the age on Florenziasis? updated article this article is from last month yeah and so insisting okay initial carbon dating of the sediment determined the remains to be 18,000 years old wow. wow which is startlingly young putting the previous unknown species closer in time to us than neanderthals uh, the date was revised in 2016 estimating instead that the hobbit was 50,000 to 60,000 years old Interesting. I wonder what changed and wonder what they got out of the first one. The specimen was just wrong in about five different ways and unexpected to the point of people thinking like this can't be possible, said Paige Madison, a historian of paleoanthropology and science writer is currently working on a book about the Hobbit titled Strange Creatures Beyond Count to be published in 2025. Hmm. Hmm. That's still pretty recent, though. I mean, the grand 50,000 is pretty recent. I wonder why they thought it was 18 and why they changed that. 18 is more magical. It's closer. That's magical. Yeah, that that's seems like, unreal. Well, do you know about the Orang Pendek? Mm -mm. The Orang Pendek is a, a mythical creature that they uh, people have spotted in Vietnam and in some other places of the world. Re rejected name. What's that? They rejected. They were going to use that name first, but they had to reject. <laughs> Floresi anus. Yeah. <laughs> meant flowery anus. Flowery anus. <laughs> Oops. Oh boy. Yeah, you can't say that. <laughs> I wonder why they did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Orang Pendek is a very similar creature that has been 
talked about by uh, indigenous people and people that live in the jungle, and they insist that it's a real thing. Hmm. It's a tiny, hairy, little human that is very similar to these hobbit people. And, you know, the speculation, like, you know, from the cryptozoology people is that this thing's still alive in very Today? small populations. Yeah. Hmm. There's some bullshit That's videos kind of that like, show one running across the road. Have you ever seen that video? Mm-hmm. It, it looks fake, right? Yeah, it looks fake. Do you think the Gimlin footage is is, is real? Patterson Gimlin yeah. footage, one hundred percent fake. Fake? Yeah, it looks yeah. fake. Yeah, everything that looks fake is fake. Is it a, a person in a suit? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It's Why? A guy, it's a guy walking. It's in a, a guy in a suit. suit. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Although I did get really high once, and I was convinced <laughs> that it was really Bigfoot, and I was being an asshole all this time. I was like, oh my god, what if that really is Bigfoot? I just been a dick. Because somebody these <laughs> hardcore Bigfoot believers, that's their footage. The Patterson. But there's so many problems with that. First of all, Roger Patterson literally got arrested for writing a bad check to pay for the camera that he used to film that. They went there specifically to film it. Um, The guy, uh, Bob Hieronymus, who says he was Bigfoot, when you see him walk, he's this big old gangly cowboy-looking dude. When you see him walk, he walks exactly like that Bigfoot you thing. You think it did. was him? 100%. Huh. Yeah. They even have the re- a receipt from a fucking gorilla suit that they bought. <laughs> have you ever seen him walking side by side? Find a video of Bob Hieronymus walking side by side with the original Patterson footage. So they show the Bigfoot walking and yeah. then Bob walking, and you're like, oh. <laughs> like, I mean, because he's, he, he looked like a Bigfoot. The guy was a fucking, <laughs> you know, there's dudes, the big old cowboy looking dudes, big old fucking. <laughs> Farm country strong dudes. Yeah. They look like apish. They're just big old fuckers. And this guy was one of those guys. And you see him walking. And you see him walking. And it's he walks right. You know, they, they, they superimpose it. They put side by side, rather. And when they do it, you, you go, oh, yeah, definitely. What a disappointment. Do you want to believe that it's real? No, I don't want to believe. Did you ever believe it was real? When I was eight, yeah. 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 <laughs> And when you're nine, you're like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, but my God, there's people to this day, those hardcore, hardcore Bigfoot people are cult members. They really are. They, 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 they decide to shut off a part of their brain that critically looks at information. Aren't there any eyewitnesses who strike you as, as credible? I was talking to um, uh, Les Stroud about yeah. this. Do you know Les? I was talking mm-hmm. to Les once about this, I think. Yeah, Les... He's a very credible guy in terms of, like, survival tactics. Mm-hmm. He knows a lot about that. But his, the, the, he didn't see one with his own eyes. He heard something, and it, he heard noises that sounded chimpanzee-like. Like, ho, 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 ho. Mm-hmm. Bears make those noises mm-hmm. all the time. I've seen bears make those. I've watched bears make those noises. They make them particularly when they're fighting with each other. They sound very much like gorillas. They're, <laughs> they do that. All the time. So if you were alone in the woods and you heard that and you heard smashing and thumping around, you're like, oh, my God, there's a gorilla out there. Oh, my God, there's some kind of a primate out there. There have been people that have spotted things that are very eerily similar to what you would think is a large bipedal ape. The problem is a lot of these places are heavily wooded and populated by bears. And bears walk on two legs all the time. So here, there's Bob, and there's the Bigfoot, right? <laughs> I mean, case closed, right? I never saw that. I mean, look at that dude. 
Look, isn't he like what I said? Big yeah. old country dude. Yeah. I mean, we see that guy walking, and you imagine him with a, a fucking gorilla suit on. I mean, it doesn't even it doesn't even look good. It looks like shit. <laughs> I mean, look look at that thing. It looks like a guy in a gorilla suit. And in my opinion, everything that looks fake is fake. I've never seen anything that looks fake that's real. I mean, I could be wrong. Yeah. I don't know what that is. But I definitely know that the guy, that, that there's like, there's a whole paper trail of buying a gorilla. Is that what he's saying? That's the I, suit? I honestly don't know. I've, I've never seen this video. I was trying to find the side by side. I was having a hard time finding it. And this is the one I picked. And okay. So he's saying that that's what he wore. But that thing does look like it. If you go back to that video, that photo of where he's holding up that suit, that looks pretty fucking similar, man. Pretty fucking mm. similar. And all you'd have to do is put that thing on and walk through the woods. And it's just too convenient. All of it's too convenient that the fact that the guy went looking for it and found it and filmed it and, you know, the whole thing's corny. It's corny. <clears throat> data matters. Data does matter. And there's no real data in terms of um, genetics. You know, there's been a lot of, like, goofy talk that they found, like, some kind of human DNA and samples of hair. The problem with that is all that, all that DNA's been contaminated. I actually talked to an actual biologist about this, hmm. and uh, we, we did a, an episode of uh, Joe Rogan Questions Everything for the Sci-Fi Channel on Bigfoot. We hung around with Bigfoot hunters. Duncan and I went out with them and looking for Bigfoot and camping with them and everything, and I, I just— it's people that are just looking for something, you know, and some of them have, have had experiences. Some of them have said they've seen things, but it's just all of it just reeks of horseshit. And it's unfortunate because I think at one point in time it was real. I think almost certainly at one point in time human beings did interact with Gigantopithecus. It was a real animal. You know about that? Mm -hmm. And Gigantopithecus matches exactly like what people talk about when they talk about Sasquatch it looks exactly like that an enormous bipedal hominid that was you know maybe more than eight feet tall and they found out about this thing by accident when a guy was uh, looking in an apothecary shop in China and he found gigantic teeth that were clearly primate teeth so like, where'd you find these and they go there and they go to the site and they, they dig out jaw bones that indicate it was bipedal and so now they know it's a real thing that existed and they I think they date that to when do they date I think they date that to 100,000 years ago. When did they date Gigantopithecus to? Uh, Wikipedia says, uh, Wikipedia says uh, roughly 2 million to 350,000 years. 350,000. I thought it was closer. <laughs> that was closer to to us. Um, that's just what Wikipedia says. I have to see if there's other disputes or something. Yeah, see if it because I'd read that these date that the carbon date that they did on these teeth. I think they said that that was somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred and something thousand years ago. Hmm. So that would put it, you know, with semi modern looking human beings. Mm -hmm. So the question Very is, modern. right? And then the question is like, how long did it survive? Like, just because you find something, you find, like, say, if you find one that's 200,000 years old, doesn't mean that it didn't exist 100,000 years ago or even 50,000 years ago. Mm. Like, when was the last one? When did they die off? And when did humans encounter them? And if you look at their range, like, if they found them in Asia and then you look at the Bering landmass and you look at where, where does it drop off, well, it drops off in the Pacific Northwest. 
Like that's like literally like goes down Alaska, makes its way down the coast. Dense forest, which is where a, a thing like that. So proteins extracted from a roughly 1.9 million year old tooth of the aptly named Gigantopithecus is a close relative to modern orangutans. So protein comparisons amongst living fossil apes suggest that Gigantopithecus and orangutan forerunners diverged from a common ancestor between 10 and 12 million years ago. Jeez. But when did it die off? It's the same thing. It says they hadn't found anything 000. from the late Pleistocene era. They only have this from the early part of it. Okay, so it said the fossils date from around 2 million to almost 300,000 years ago. The sizes of individual teeth and jaws indicate that it weighed between 200 and 300 kilograms. That's a big fucker. <clears throat> Interesting. So that was that was Bigfoot. The, mm. So it, it, if humans did make it to the point where we had language and the, the ability to communicate ideas, they probably would communicate about all these creatures that they encountered, yeah. and that would be one of them. Yeah. But the actual, like, Patterson footage Bigfoot, that's horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> There's just too many hunters out there, too many hikers. Who would have seen something. Yeah, they don't see anything. Yeah. No, no, I've, I've talked to many people that have spent, like, they've spent months in the backwoods. I know multiple guys that do, like my friend Adam Greentree from Australia, every year he comes to America and he'll do uh, a, a, a remote wilderness elk hunt solo. And he, he live streams it. He puts it like pieces of it on his Instagram. And he was out there for 28 days. He did see a grizzly bear a couple years back, hmm. which is not supposed to be there in the Where? San Juan Mountains of Colorado. Mm -hmm. But that's close to Wyoming, and Wyoming is a, a habitat for grizzlies, and it makes sense that grizzlies would go across the border and make their way in there. And there's been historical sightings of things that people thought were grizzly bears there, but no Bigfoots. Hmm. None. Zero. <laughs> You'd think somebody would get a camera footage shot of it, like from these trail cams or yeah. camera traps or something. I mean, nothing. And you personally never heard or experienced anything? No. Like no. a Bigfoot thing? Yeah. You don't think I would say that first? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the first Maybe thing I would say. Maybe you're holding out, Joe. No, I've never even seen a wolf. I mean, I, did, I think I did see a wolf once in Alberta, but it was uh, very, very dark. It was like it was getting dark at night, and I saw something run across the road that looked like dog-sized. Hmm. I thought possibly could be a wolf. Hmm. Um, but they have wolves up there. They spot them there all the time. That's not uncommon. The Bigfoot thing is just... It's just one of those legends, you know, like the Yeti. And we, we know too much about the world now. Let's go Can I have some? Yeah, please. We know too much about what's really in the world now Thanks. To, to fall for something like that. It's yeah. my, first, uh, my first coffee in a while. Oh, really? I think so. How long? At least a year. What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. This is going to be wild. Michael Pollan said that he took three months off of caffeine, and then the first cup of coffee he had was like psychedelic. <laughs> so cheers. Cheers, man. Cheers to you. Thanks to that. Mm. What kind of coffee is it? Black Rifle coffee. Hmm. How do you feel? I feel crazy. Mm. <laughs> I feel wild. Ready to go into a trance. It's been a while, man. I gave it up um, sometime last year. What I, made you just want to sip right now? Um, Watching me do it? <laughs> that what it is? Yeah. Peer pressure, just like I got More, you to drink. <laughs> like in Athens. <laughs> it was that margarita. <laughs> Margaritas will do it. Yeah. Margaritas have been responsible for more bad decision making than probably any other beverage. You don't drink that much, though, do you? No, 
no, no, yeah. no. I, I like a couple of drinks every now and then, though. I, you know, it's one of those things. It's just not good for your health, hmm. you know, and I'm very conscious of my health. So. I realized that, yeah. It really hit me last year. I got COVID last, uh, last summer, um, and I don't, I'm not sure what the connection was, but just my body felt terrible mm-hmm. for, like, at least, at least a month or so. And then I couldn't, I just couldn't get back to myself. And so I quit, I quit alcohol um, and caffeine, mm. or coffee for sure. Uh, and I felt a lot, I actually felt a lot better, a lot better. A lot so COVID really got you bad. It got me really bad. I was sick for, I mean, I was in bed for definitely a week or two. And then uh, I had like um, just persistent kind of malaise mm. for at least a couple months. Mm. Uh, and that went on through most of last year. Wow. So when I stopped... So long COVID, uh, what they call that's long what, that's COVID. That's what it felt right? like, man. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, I never had a diagnosis. But it's, what is it? it's a weird term, right? Because it's kind of vague. What does that mean? You know, it's like people get wrecked by the disease <clears throat> and then they don't seem to recover very well and, and return to their robust self. And why? Why does it get some people? How come some people get sick and they get over it? Hmm. Can I ask you about your vitamin intake? Yeah, it's pretty poor. I mean, so after, so last summer I started uh, taking a lot more vitamin D mm-hmm. and vitamin C and echinacea. Uh, but that's that's, basi- it? that's basically it. Yeah. yeah, that's not enough. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, you can take things that cover your basis. Like there's a, there's a product called AG1, Athletic Greens. It's nice because you just mix it in water, a little packet, pour it in water, or you get like a, like a scoop of it and put it in water and mix it up. It's Every gotta, day? Yeah, but it's easy. It doesn't taste bad. It tastes good. And uh, but you do need vitamin D, and you should also take vitamin D with vitamin K two. Mm. It, it helps your body absorb. But you should be taking a host of things. You should be taking colloidal minerals. You should be taking uh, essential fatty acids. Like if you want to optimize your your body's ability to recover and uh, to be able to perform, yeah, you really need to supplement. And supplementation, I think, is something that many people have maligned that do not experience it. When you talk to doctors, all you need is a balanced diet. And those mm-hmm. doctors always have pot bellies and they look like shit. <laughs> if you talk to someone who's a fit doctor who's like really healthy, they'll, they'll tell you the, the value of not just good nutrition but also good supplementation. Hmm. And you really should supplement. And supplementing with vitamin D is critical, especially to avoid uh, colds. You know, that's the speculation about why we get flu and colds in the winter. Oh, it's flu season. What, why does flu have a fucking season? Mm. Well, because that's when people are very low in vitamin D. Because there's not getting any, The best way to get vitamin D for sure is sun exposure. Yeah. And vitamin D is a hormone. It's not just a vitamin. It's, it's, it's responsible for a lot of things in the body, including your ability to have a, a properly functioning immune system. Mm. And I think there's some nutty number of people in this country that are deficient in vitamin D. And uh, out of the people that were hospitalized with COVID, I think the number was 84% of them were, had d- deficient levels of vitamin D. How much do you take by supplement? Me? Yeah. Um, you don't have to reveal it. What's it, 20,000 milligrams a day? 20,000? Yeah. Like the, each little tablet is like 5,000. I take four of them a day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I go hard, <laughs> <laughs> but I go hard with a lot of things. That's a lot of D. But I also, I'm almost 60 years old. I'm 56 years old, and I push my body. I, I work out really hard. I work out as hard now as I did when I was 25. Mm. You know, and, and it is possible to do, but you have to do it right. Like you have to give your body the tools that it needs to recover. And 
But those tools and the food that you eat and the supplements that you take, all those, they help your overall help, health, which helps your ability to recover from illness. You were telling me that in, in Athens, too. That yeah. it, it makes sense. That like some, some sort of strength training. Strength training is critical. Like, first of all, it's critical as you age because you lose bone mass, you lose muscle mass. And there's a lot of people that look similar to the way they looked 10 years ago, but they have more fat and less muscle and dense and less dense bones. Hmm. And it's just just for your ability to do things and to be mobile. And you, you have to force your body to lift heavy things. And I don't mean really heavy. Like the heaviest thing I lift is my body weight. The second heaviest thing I lift is 70 pounds. You don't do heavy weights? No. Huh. No. I don't do heavy weights at huh. all. I do kettlebells. So what I do is uh, like cleans and presses and swings and windmills. And I do all these things that make my whole body work as one unit. Like I don't do anything that's an isolation exercise. Everything I do is my, my – so it's all stuff where my body's forced to balance this weight and press it and then lean over and press it up. Or Turkish get-ups where you lie on your back and you press it up and then you get up and you stand up on one knee and then you stand all the way up and then you slowly lower yourself back down. They're not glamorous exercises, but they're really good for a coordination of all of your muscular and all of your, your, your entire core and your, your whole system working together instead of like curls or, you know, tricep extensions. Those are good for isolating and developing specific muscles, but I don't do any of that stuff. Everything I do is just I use my whole body. How many times a week? I work out almost every day. Hmm. Do something. I do something almost every day. I got to step it up. Well, it's not hard to do. It really isn't. You just have to get in the habit of doing it. Hmm. Like if you just get in the habit of doing 100 push-ups and 100 bodyweight squats every day, that'll change your fucking life. Hmm. And it takes 15 minutes. Hmm. It does not take long. You can do 100 push-ups in 15 minutes. I do 100 push-ups and 100 bodyweight squats in 15 minutes. Yeah. I might have to work up to that. You just do sets of 20. Just do five sets of 20. So I do... Two in a row where I do yeah. 20 push-ups, 20 bodyweight squats, 20 push-ups, 20 bodyweight squats. Then I catch my breath, have something to drink, and then when my heart rate gets down a little bit, I'm ready to go again. I do another 20, another 20, another 20, another 20. So now I'm in two. You know, So now I just need one more. And then I do my last 20 and my last bodyweight squat, and it's 100. Okay. It's not hard to do. I can do it, man. You just say, this is what I do every day. And it, maybe it'll take you a half hour, but it's a yeah. nice little workout. Yeah. It's simple. You can do it anywhere. I can do it on the road. I can do it anywhere. It doesn't cover all of your bases, but mm -hmm. it's a really good base to start from. And then once you start doing something like that, then you can incorporate other things. Then you can incorporate lunges with like maybe dumbbells or chin-ups or things along those lines, dips. Like you could most certainly get a really good workout every day. With just your body weight. Hmm. There's so many things you could do. And now with with YouTube and all the resources that are available, you can just Google body weight routines. And bam, you've got so many different options that you could just follow along to some video. And people do things like that. It's super easy to do. Okay. Yeah. I'm on board. Yeah. But but resistance training is very important. It's really important as you age. What about cardio, though? Because th that's the one thing I don't have trouble with. I've been doing cardio in the mornings and getting lots of sunshine. Cardio is great. That's kind of that, that's how I feel a lot better. So when I when I got sick last summer, that's when I, I needed to move a lot more. Plus, mm -hmm. I was sitting at the desk too much, you know, like typing and writing and stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So that um, my back was all out of whack. I've been mm -hmm. going to a chiropractor 
Uh, I went for, for months to a chiropractor. And then uh, I'm, I've been sleeping a lot more and just being more mobile, more mm-hmm. active. I mean, there were, there were days I would sit down to research and write. I could go for hours at a time and, like, in the aggregate, maybe 15 hours a day, like when I was trying to finish the book. Mm-hmm. And that, that caught up to me bad, man. Makes sense. So I pulled my back out a couple times trying to lift the girls. Ooh. That's that's when I that's when I realized I was like grossly out of shape. Do you use an ergonomic chair when you sit? Uh no. Did you use one of these? Get like one of this? these fuckers. Yeah. These things are amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting in this thing three hours every day. Yeah. And I used to have like a regular office chair and after every podcast my back would be like Oh, it hurt. But this forces you to have correct posture. I've noticed. It's it's not very it's it wasn't comfortable at first. It's yeah. a little odd. <laughs> but overall it's it'll be more comfortable if yeah. you if you get used to this. Like I have the exact same chair at my home desk when I write. It same gives you chair. That, that lower back support, which mm-hmm. is cool. And it also it's just like the way it's it doesn't allow you to kinda like slump in. Like the way That's the, what I was doing. I was yeah. slumping over mm-hmm. the computer like like this. And my, my spine was all out, yeah. of, out of whack. I used to get a bad neck pain when I was uh, writing too much on a laptop because, you know, yeah. you're sitting there like this the yeah. whole time. And that just this, like, head down in a bad office chair, some shitty chair, I would get like, ah, oh, my neck would hurt. And that's when I knew I had to stop. And sometimes I'd try to keep writing, but my neck would be irritated. And I'm like, I got to stop. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't – I don't get any of that anymore with this. Hmm. These are – what are they called? Capiscos. And the, it used to be – the company used to call, be called Fully, but I think they sold to another company now. These are the shit. Uh, I've tried everything. I've tried the ones where you're on your knees. Yeah. You know, when, yeah. when you're – it's not really a chair. Yeah. It's like you're, you're, all your weight is sitting on your knees. Those are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Those are pretty good. I used to have one of those at the house. Uh, some people like a balance ball. They like sit on one of those Bosu balls. Yeah, that was recommended too. Those are good because yeah. it's the same principle. But it then you, forces have to, you have to watch your posture the whole time. Yeah, but that's the idea. Yeah. Is that what posture is essentially is is a, a constant static exercise, hmm. right? Because you really want to just do this. And I have a I used to have terrible posture. I'm, I'm much better at it now, but it's because I've had back problems. You know, so you just like force yourself to like stay in this. This is how your body's supposed to be. Yeah. It's very unnatural, though. It is. At least but, for me. But that's also, like, why I wonder, like, why did those animals, mm. those ancient hominids, why did they choose to stand up? Mm. Like, what what, what facilitated that, mm. you know? Mm. You all right? Yeah, I'm okay. You okay with the coffee? <laughs> yeah. seems like you're about to trip balls <laughs> back there, buddy. <laughs> I had a moment there. <laughs> we I, talk- I do feel it. We I mean. were talking about this before, but the reason why I brought up kundalini yoga and I was going to bring up holotropic breathing, there's just, there are some methods that people use. Yeah. And I'm, I'm saying this as someone who ha- hasn't – I've done some breathing exercises that did create a very bizarre state. And breathing exercises, I do have some experience, but I've never done the holotropic breathing. Hmm. Where Me they, they have these, you know, like real rituals where they do holotropic breathing. And people have what, what they describe as very psychedelic experiences. That was Stan Groff after mm. some of his LSD experiences. I think, I think he created holotropic breathwork as a way to, uh, to engage the, the, the same process Interesting. that he discovered through, through LSD. And then, of course, there's John Lilly, who developed a sensory deprivation tank that mm. also makes you achieve a psychedelic state 
endogenously, just but but through an external mechanism of lying in the water. That's we have one here. Have you seen the one that we have here? No. In the yeah, studio? we have one right here. Yeah. 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 I'll give it a try. Does it's, it work? Oh yeah, yeah. It's pretty wild. It's really interesting. I used to have one in my house, but people get, my wife got weirded out by it. People got weirded out when they come over. Like, what the fuck is in your basement? Is that a freezer? Like, no. It's a, it's a, bo- a body shaped freezer. Bodies in your freezer. <laughs> no, it's a. It, but it's even weirder. Like, you got a tank that you float in your basement. Like, yeah. You would too if you did it. <laughs> Once you do it, you go, oh my god, this is amazing. Have you had out of body experiences? In there, yeah. Well, it's it's essentially the idea that Lily came up with, and he had a bunch of different iterations of it. The r- initial one, he wore a uh, scuba tank helmet, like a scuba helmet, and uh, he was sort of suspended by straps in the water, and he had this helmet on, and the water was the same temperature of his skin, and so through this method, he was able to relieve himself of most external stimulation because the external stimulations that you have right now are like obviously we're sitting at this desk you see everything you hear everything your feet are touching the ground your butt's touching the chair your back's your that's all sensory input and in the absence of any sensory input lily's suspicion was that you could achieve psychedelic states Hmm. And so if you could free the mind. And so the, he did a bunch of different versions of it. And then eventually he figured out that if you just added a ton of salt to the water and you used uh, what, is, what is like um, waterbed heaters. So waterbed heaters at the bottom, you line it with plastic and then you get it to a steady 94, whatever degrees. And with that salt in it, you'll float. And when you do get in there, the water becomes impossible to different. You, you can't tell the difference between where the air is and the water is mm. because it's just all the same temperature. And so it's the t- same temperature of your skin. So as long as you don't move, you don't even feel the water. And it feels like you're just flying through space. Mm. And you don't see anything. You don't hear anything. You're, half your face is underwater, so your ears are underwater. A lot of people put, like, earplugs in. I generally don't. But then half your body, like, is, like, above the surface and you're just lying there floating, and it's very relaxing. It's a great way for your body to absorb Epsom salts. You get magnesium through that. You know, like when people take Epsom salts when they're sore, it's magnesium. You're taking yeah. magnesium, and so you're just taking it through your skin. I'm taking notes, man. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to incorporate all this. But these are all ways that people have. Oh, Jesus. I almost got the book but didn't. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Look, that's amazing. It's pretty good. Like it literally like cut a line. That's a crazy line. Check that, Jimmy. Thank you, sir. Um, but I, so my question was: Is there any historical evidence or any information that leads you to think that possibly they were engaging in some other kind of thing? So your friend who doesn't believe, oh right, like maybe there were some other options that they were also doing when you think about these rituals, right? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's a possibility. I mean, we know there were there were cave techniques. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean, it's not just it's not just puppy pup and gilly. There are other. I'm going to clean the coffee at the same time. Thank you. Um, there were other scholars too who just aren't aren't big fans mm. of the psychedelic hypothesis for any number of reasons. But well, also, we, it's like very unpopular until recently to even s- suggest anything about psychedelic. I mean, think about all the different people that their career suffered. Because right. they did bring up psychedelics. That's who I write about in, in the right. book. Yeah, it's Professor yeah. Ruck, yeah. who's uh, 88 years old. Uh, he's still at Boston University. He was at Boston University in the late 70s 
when they unleashed that hypothesis, and it it really impacted his career you in know. the '80s and '90s and and beyond. So and like that's you know that that people are aware of that. They're aware of not. Just I was a, aware of that. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. That's I mean it's at least part of the reason why I haven't tried psychedelics. Mm. Yeah, you know I wasn't I wasn't personally called to that experience. Well, it's also you you know from your perspective. If you were a guy who did psychedelics and then you're reporting on psychedelics, like, oh, this mm. is confirmation bias. This mm. guy wants to believe this. Mm. But instead, you know, since you haven't, it's probably better for the, the overall, you know, acceptance of your research that you're, you're looking at it purely from an academic perspective. You're just looking at fact-based, evidence-based, mm-hmm. historically-based. Mm-hmm. And trying to find the data. Um, yeah. Like we were talking about. I think... Uh, yeah, my experience is, is meaningless compared to all that. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I, I never, I don't know, I managed to avoid it for so many years that when it came time to write the book, it just seemed like it, it wasn't a priority at all. Well, I think you should do it eventually because it's so profound. You can't, you're not going to be able to believe that you never experienced it before. Mm. But also one of the most bizarre things about the, the DMT state in particular, which is something that we know is produced endogenously in the human body. That you you've been there before, like when you get there, you're what do you like, mean? oh, I've been here before. It like, seems familiar. Oh, 100 percent. Like the first time I did it, I was like, oh my god, it was. It's so mind blowing, but also so familiar that you think, oh, I've been here before, and I think you're there all the time. I think you probably go there to some extent every night you when know? you're dreaming. Yeah, and we don't know. We don't specifically know, like. We do know, um, because of uh, uh, Rick Strassman's work, Strassman, who wrote uh, DMT, the Spirit Molecule, yeah. and he did the first uh, FDA-approved uh, studies that they did with uh, IV slow-drip DMT experiences. And these people had just wild experiences with entities and realms. And apparently there's some stuff that's going on right now in London. Mm-hmm. And Graham Hancock told me about this, that they're... they're there's some really profound work that's being done uh, that they're doing these studies where they're doing the same sort of technique. They're doing it for like three hours. And these, at Imperial. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's at Imperial. Yeah. Do you know more about it? You can tell us. Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's long. I th- I'm not sure if it's that long. I think it's um, 30 minutes. Uh, oh. But th- there's another team in, in, in Basel in, Sw- in Switzerland that's also experimenting with uh, Infuse. I think it's like 90 minutes. Mm. And uh, interestingly, this is somewhat breaking news, there, there's a new study happening in the U.S. So the, 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 first, uh, the first U.S. research on uh, extended state DMT is happening at UC San Diego, mm. which is really cool. Actually, uh, Jamie, there's a, there should be a press release about it, which came out earlier this year. Um, there's a team there being headed by a guy named uh, John Dean, Dr. John Dean. Uh, he's, he's talked with Rick, by the way, mm-hmm. about his research. Um, and they recently got some funding uh, to be the first uh, U.S. site to host these extended state infusions um, and to I really try, sign up. trying to get in the route. Do you, are you interested? Yeah, sign me up. Well, I'm, I'm, I imagine it will eventually become something like ketamine therapy. You know, um, one of my friends, uh, Neil Brennan, who's uh, suffered from depression in his life, hilarious comedian, hmm. um, he uh, went to, I, I guess it's a psychiatrist. I don't know who does these things. But he went to this place where they give you an IV ketamine drip. Hmm. 
And he's like, okay, it's probably going to be, you know, just relaxing. He goes, oh, no, no, no. You, you are tripping your balls off <laughs> in a doctor's office, like hooked up to an IV bag, closing your eyes and experiencing this like full-blown ketamine state, wow. which he said is like profoundly weird and very, very psychedelic. And some people, it, it helps them uh, alleviate depression. Hmm. Yeah. But it's also like super abused recreationally especially around here there's because there's a lot of people that get prescribed ketamine for depression so uh -huh. they have like these nasal pumps of ketamine see people see people at night like, we had someone in the club that went into a k-hole no way yeah 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 someone in the audience <laughs> the husband was like she did too much ketamine just like, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at a comedy club because you're you're spraying this stuff up your nose, and you know no one's stopping you from doing it ten times. That you seems know? irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, that's what people do. I know, but this is this they is get my drunk. That's my concern with with some of these drugs. Right, that that is a legitimate concern, but also that is a concern with food. You you can't tell people you can't regulate people's food consumption just because people get overweight. Yeah, you got to let people figure it out, and you, you got to give them the information and the tools that they need to make good choices. Hmm. And the only way you do that is if it's legal and studied and people understand you know what is the correct dose like what is the correct thing what's the best way to do it that's mm. the most beneficial and least causes the least harm and treats it with the most respect because mm. one of the things about rituals i think in these ritualistic settings is that there's this heightened state of importance and significance of the thing that you're you're about to embark on yeah this this journey that you're about yep. to go on and um Related to this, there was a, a place that I had initially purchased before I put the mothership at the Ritz, uh, before I bought the Ritz. I, w I was in, under contract to buy this one building that was owned by a cult. And uh, there's a documentary about the cult. It's called Holy Hell. And it's about this guy who's a hypnotist and also a gay porn star who started a cult in California and then moved it out to Austin. And this guy would do this thing with these people where he would call it the knowing. It's a crazy documentary because like all cult documentaries, in the beginning, it looks awesome. In the beginning, it's like, oh, they figured it out. This is the solution to what ails us. The modern society where people are disconnected, there's no sense of community. These people are splashing around the water together. They're going on hikes together. They're doing yoga together. They're eating together. They're singing together. God, it looks amazing, amazing. And he had this thing that he would do, it was called the knowing, and there's videos of him doing it to people. Mm -hmm. And he would, when these felt like they were ready, and it took Fred, some people would be very angry, he's like, you're not ready, because he was just a con man. <laughs> but, but what he did was convince them that when this thing would happen and he would touch them and give them the knowing, that they would have this profound experience where they would connect with God. And it worked. That's what's crazy. When he did it to these people, and obviously these people are deeply con committed, right? They're cult members. Mm. They're, they've bought in hook, line, sinker, and he's a hypnotist. So he's doing hypnotic therapy on these people. And when he does it to them, you see them like, oh, like, and they talked about it like it was the happiest moment in their life. And they were talking about it. In this documentary, in the context of describing how this guy was a con man, 
and about this guy ruined their lives and they followed him for two decades and now they're lost and 50 years old just trying to find their way in the world and they were just young people who were trying to find a way. They still talk about that experience being one of the most impactful, profound moments of their life. Mm. And it was bullshit. Mm. But was it? Mm. It clearly wasn't bullshit. If I mean, he didn't really have magic powers, but he did have the power of suggestion. He did understand hypnosis. Mm. And because they believed in him so much, they really did have this experience. So what is it about this trick, this placebo effect, this... This, this thing that you can hit, this switch that you can hit, where these endogenous chemicals right. that we know exist, we can make them bust out of your brain right. in some profound way that makes you have this complete transcendent experience. That's, the, that's, what's, that's what interests me about this research at UCSD. I think they're, in addition to the extended state infusions with DMT, they're also setting up these volunteers to fMRIs to really try and figure out how DMT is interacting with with the brain, how it's released or not. And I and I think part of that that interest in that research is really trying to figure out the endogenous. That's sort of the holy grail of DMT research. So this guy John Dean, I think he's he's found it in in, in rat brains, mm. but we've n- we've never actually seen conclusively, um, uh, never measured the presence of DMT in the human body. The human brain. I think that that's part of his interest is trying to figure out if he can um, endogenously identify the presence within these states of mind. So whether it's you know someone in deep meditation mm-hmm. or in or in dreaming or some other um, you know altered experience, I think that part of the the really interesting part of that about the research there is trying to isolate exactly how that gets triggered. Because if we're sitting on this incredibly potent chemical and we don't know how to release or to control it. It's something that, that deserves a little more attention, I think. Um, For sure. Uh, but the, the kundalini people think that you can achieve that state through kundalini. So that, that needs to be studied then, I think. This is coming from people that I know that have done both. Yeah. yeah. But my question is, one of the things that does happen when you have a profound mm. breakthrough experience, you don't have flashbacks, mm. really, but you can have a dream. And McKenna talked about this. And in that dream, you'll you'll smoke DMT, and you'll have a DMT trip. Mm. It's almost like a doorway gets opened up. Hmm. I've and, had dreams like that. Have you? Yeah. What are they, What were they like? Yeah. Yeah, because I set up this boundary in, in my real life. It hasn't happened often, but I've had a couple of dreams where I've uh, I've imbibed the potion, and uh, it's very strange, actually, man. Um, I don't have I don't have visions. There, there, there isn't a breakthrough experience, but there's this sense of like overwhelming calm and serenity. And so I'd, I never felt like I was hallucinating things that weren't there. Maybe I got the wrong potion. But when I've had these experiences in the dream world, it's like the dream world wraps itself around me mm. in, in a cocoon. And I have this ability just to um, also lucid, lucid dream of this very rich uh, dream life. Uh, Have you always been able to lucid dream? Yeah, since I was uh, since I was a kid. Interesting. Yeah, I, that's another thing that you would think that I would have practiced. Like, it seems like there's actual strategies to lucid dream. Right. And it seems like it's fun, <laughs> but why have I not looked into it at all? <laughs> you know, I think about that. But it's like, worth your attention. Holotropic breathing, yeah. and I think about yeah. that with many. McKenna talked about that too, which is really funny. He, he said, because people were talking about all these different ways to achieve psychedelic states without yeah. psychedelics. Yeah. And he said, it makes me think of this um, one monk 
who had uh, practiced a, a city of levitation. And, it's one uh, of those cities. Yeah, yeah, and he had practiced this for like 10, 10 years. And uh, the Buddha came to town, and he said, I have practiced a city of levitation. I can walk on water. And the Buddha was like, yeah, but the ferry's only a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is like, yeah, you probably get there endogenously, but why would you when mushrooms are everywhere? Mm. That was McKenna's take on it. Like, mm. yeah, okay. Maybe you can get there through yoga or whatever, but you can definitely get there through DMT or ayahuasca. If or you understand the dosing, like like you mentioned, if you understand yeah. um, how to grow them, uh, how to use them properly, and I think that I think that's kind of what we're missing from the ancient past. And so it's it's kind of funny. I've had all these weird conversations over the past three years about like um, the application of the of the ancient ritual to today. And uh, you know, my my feelings on psychedelics have changed quite a bit over the past three years. Um, and what I've realized, amongst other things, is that it's less about the the drug, and I think it's more about everything you just described. It's more about the ritual. It's more about the ceremony. Yeah. Uh, the the fact that these drugs are organic and they've been found on the planet and their, um, you know, their 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 use on every inhabited continent has been cataloged, is something worth reflecting on. So they're there. You can't ignore them. But throughout the long arc of history, there have been uh, practices and protocols around their use, which typically obtained within small communities, um, small tight knit communities where people took care of each other. Uh, where people knew how to grow and and dose these things, and I think that uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is this: uh, the secret to pharmacology is posology, the notion that it's it's all about uh, it's all about the dosing, and it's and it's all about uh, the ritual around which this experience is taking place. And so, like when you read Eleusis, for example, remember we went to mm-hmm. you got to see Eleusis in person, like. If if this hypothesis is true, right about this this psychedelic potion, you know it wasn't it wasn't consumed in a dining room like in haste with no preparation. Like you would have prepared for at least eighteen months, if not longer, to to walk that sacred pilgrimage trail, to show up there, and to over the course of nine days, by the way, to experience this rite of passage, which for many people was the culminating experience of a lifetime. Yeah, uh, and I think that. That's something we're just we're just missing today, at least at least in the West. I don't think we have that kind of sacred container. Well, it's illegal. That's a big part of it. And um, you know, there's a lot of ignorance as to like what these things are and what the experience actually is. And I, I absolutely agree that ceremony is important and set and setting is mm-hmm. very, very important. Having the proper mindset, it, making sure that you haven't eaten anything before you've done it. But I don't know if ceremony is more important than the actual experience because the actual experience you could have with a bunch of your idiot friends sitting on a couch. And if you do DMT, you will fucking 100% go there. And and you'll be like, how is this possible? How is it possible that this is literally 15 seconds away? Like you take three giant hits and you're gone. And you exist in this realm that it's unimaginable. That and it's you there. It's not you're seeing things that aren't there. It's you're there. You're there in this thing because it's you're not just seeing things. You're experiencing them. You're you're. It's like they're working on your brain. It's very weird. Whatever it is, like you see, you can sometimes see them like moving around. They're like like mechanics. 
like guys with screwdrivers and shit, like fucking around with your head. <laughs> it really, it's very weird. It's a very weird experience. And unfortunately, it's illegal. And it's crazy because fentanyl isn't. <laughs> you know, it's like you could buy opiates at a pharmacy. You, you, you can't experience something that is probably the root of a lot of religious experiences, if not most of them. Hmm. And there was just... Re Gavin Newsom just vetoed something in California that was going to make, uh, was going to decriminalize uh, psilocybin and a bunch of other psychedelics. What was that that he, he vetoed? Yeah, over the weekend. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why? In this day and age, why? Why, why less freedoms for people? That his, seems so stupid. His written response was that it, um, there was an absence of uh, therapeutic guidelines. And that if they were formulated and then published, I think I think he would have reviewed the bill differently. Well, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. that's what it said exactly. That's actually fair. That's fair. But the the I think the proper solution would be to come up with guidelines. Right. California should immediately begin work to set up regulated treatment guidelines replete with dosing information, therapeutic guidelines, rules to prevent against exploitation during guided treatments and medical clearance of no underlying psychosis. All those are good, that's ever actually very good. That's better than just, okay, so I take back what I said. It, it wasn't that it was stupid, like maybe they should have had that before they attempted to decriminalize it. Newsom's statement said, unfortunately this bill would decriminalize possession prior to those guidelines going into place and I cannot sign it. That's actually fair, but that means that they should just get together and put put together some guidelines. And the problem is, in order to find out what the proper dosage is, you have to run studies. And they have to be approved. And they have to be, you know, it has to be legit. Mm -hmm. so, but they should do that. And if they do do that, they should pass those things. And, and also, I think it's important, they said, uh, to keep people, like, what was the specific language that they used about rules, about, can you hold it up again? Yeah. Is, is actually what we're talking about with guru, prevent against exploitation during guided treatments. Mm. So the guru thing that the we're talking thing. about yeah. and the, the cult thing. It's a big deal, about. man. It because is a big you're thing. very, I mean, not that I know, but, but one, I mean, one is very vulnerable yes. in that position. And I think that I always look back to the way um, psychedelics were spoken about in the 50s and 60s, right? One of these famous lines is about psychedelics are, are nonspecific amplifiers. And so it, you just make bare the unconscious, right? And to someone who hasn't done a lot of depth work into the into the unconscious and those processes, it can be very traumatic, man. And screening for psychosis. That's another very good point about his rejection of it because that's an issue. It's a giant issue. And people that struggle with normal consciousness really shouldn't be fucking around with these things. You talked about this with cannabis, by the way. 100%. Yeah, that's Alex Berenson's book. And it's also me personally having experienced it with multiple people. I've seen multiple people over the time that lost their fucking minds. And one thing a lot of them had in common was they're heavy pot smokers. Mm. And including some, one friend of mine who lost his mind and came back, he quit weed. And he was like, dude, I thought the fucking FBI was following me in the sky with drones. And like, I was freaking the fuck. And there's no reason for him to be followed. It's not like he's a criminal or even a bad guy yeah. or even a, even a fucking person of note just a guy who was freaking out because he was smoking too much weed and it was literally making him psychotic. Hmm. I mean, he was, or at least schizophrenic. Like he, he was hearing voices, stopped smoking weed, came back to normal. Hmm. So I think there's certain people, but that's just like everything. There's certain drugs that people cannot take 
certain foods people cannot eat. There's certain people have allergies. They have sensitivities to things. There's we we vary biologically so much. Like the idea that everyone should do a certain thing mm. is kind of crazy because mm. some you know there's people that are allergic to red meat. Mm. A friend of mine got bit by a tick, the Lone Star tick. It gives you something called bilirubin. Oh no, not bilirubin. Um, alpha gal, alpha gal, and it makes you uh, allergic to red meat. Huh. And it's fairly common. Happens a lot. It's a tick bite. And for him, it was like a whole year. For a whole year, he's allergic to red meat. Hmm. Weird. You know? So it's like you can't tell people, like, everyone should do ayahuasca. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Some people shouldn't do anything. Ever. Some, yeah. yeah. Some people should take whatever medication their psychiatrist is giving them that's keeping them from fucking jumping off a bridge. Right. That's yeah. another thing. Yeah, um, contraindications and people on medication. Mm -hmm. It's very, very complicated, man. Oh, sure, especially people on medications. I know people that suffer from uh, anxiety and they're on anti-anxiety medication. Yeah. They would like to try psychedelics, but they cannot mm -hmm. while they're on that medication. So there's this like weird little balancing act, what to do. Yeah, it's a big deal. I th there, there have been a lot of studies on MDMA and psilocybin over the past 20 years. Um, less clinical studies on, on some of the other things, obviously. And I think that as governments engage, we'll see policies develop that, you know, really try and, and account for all that safety, yeah. um, uh, you know, knowledge around dosing and therapeutic guidelines, mm -hmm. ethical considerations. And I think, I think that's all very, very important, man. It is very important, but it really is important for us to get a, a, an actual understanding of, like, you know, kilograms per body weight, how much body weight, like what is, like what's the effective dose for a person who weighs 140 pounds versus mm. is it different? Does it vary? You know, I don't think it varies with some, I, I think that's one of the things about DMT is it's not specific, or maybe it's psilocybin, not specific to your body weight, which is interesting. Psilocybin is, I think. Is it? Yeah, but not DMT. Is, it, is that what it is? I think so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's weird, right? Like, why isn't DMT specific to your body weight? Like, wh why wouldn't a dose for a 500-pound man be, mm. you know, way too much for you? Mm. But we have to know. We have to find the only way to know that is to study it and to get accurate research and data. That's on the on the medicinal and therapeutic front. Mm. Um, and But I do think there's lots of other good work um, around transcendence and consciousness studies and psychedelics, like outside the medicinal realm. Mm. And this is, that, that's kind of, you know, that was my interest in writing writing the book, was trying to, to suss out like the societal implications of this, the historical implications of this. Well, if you, if it really was psychedelic rituals that led to the birth of democracy, that seems pretty important. We should we should be looking at that. But kind, doesn't it kind of make sense, though? Like, who else is going to say, you know, everybody should have a say. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to be tripping. If you were like the whole world was essentially run by dictators back then, why, why would anybody vary from that strategy? Because it seems like that's the default mode of people who don't do psychedelics. Mm. I would imagine about all, all the world leaders that are currently involved in horrific things all across the, the globe. How many of them are doing psychedelics? Mm -hmm. Probably zero. Mm -hmm. Probably zero. And this idea that psychedelics could fix the world, like, I wouldn't say it that way, but maybe. You know, it might. It, it, it'll have, it would have a profound impact on just the consensus of like the general population just most people that have done them what the way it changed the way they see things and that alone would change the way they think and behave and vote and and what they accept and don't accept from their leaders mm. 
what they accept and don't insert like the dangers and the harms of censorship and propaganda they would be much more aware of that like, mm. oh you're like literally like creating mind viruses and shaping the way people think to benefit your own good yeah i think i mean but that's all the more reason to to i think to try and study the way that we engage these things in the past yes and so uh since the book came out i mean there was this you know there was all this pandemic um, space that opened up, and so I was on Zooms a lot with different people. Uh, and uh, one of the one of the projects that came from the book, which I'm pretty proud of, uh, is this guy uh, Andrew Coe. I mentioned in the book quite a bit. He's an archaeochemist. He was based at MIT when I was writing the book, and he's one of the few people who really looks into these ancient containers to try and figure out what organic compounds were, were left behind. Uh, it's a really cool science. You also need to uh, be a good classicist to do this. You need to be able to 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 read the ancient languages and compare them against the the chemical data that's coming up. You need to know ethnobotany. Um, it's you know it also helps if you can build out these sort of like paleoecological habitat maps. You know what was growing where mm. and when and why. So yeah. like it's it's kind of this mix of the art and the science. And he was one of the very few people doing this. And over the past couple years. Uh, he was invited in, in, into Yale uh, to continue uh, doing this work at the Yale Peabody Museum, which is one of the world's most prestigious natural history museums. Uh, and they've offered him the opportunity to continue studying this as part of the, the Yale Ancient Pharmacology Program, mm. which is really cool. That's very cool. There, there's like, there, there, there are professionals in the world who exist, uh, amongst other things, who are taking into account these kinds of questions about the, the, the ways that, that these beverages or, or these compounds impacted the growth of, of civilization, uh, the birth of religions, et cetera. Like this, this wasn't a field before. Mm. And I think it's been, it's been really cool for me to have conversations with folks like Andrew and his colleagues at Yale and elsewhere who are taking this uh, like pretty seriously. That's very cool. And can I ask you this? Like they've, how many vessels have they found that contained ergot? And have they found anything other than ergot that may be psychoactive? Uh, throughout antiquity, yeah, we found all, all, all kinds of things. The, the only positive ergot finds were the ones from, from Pontos. And how many different vessels did they discover that contained it? So, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they found uh, around 10 miniature cups. And, and for some reason, they only tested one. Uh, so only one came up positive uh, for that ergot. In addition to the, the beer sediment, so it was it was ergot mixed with mixed with beer, and this was all done archaeobotanically. So there was no chemical analysis. This was them using like scanning electron microscope and optical microscopy to look in and find that. And so, in addition to the cups, uh, the ergot also popped up in um, in a tooth, in a in a in, a, in a, oh. a, a jawbone that was also discovered on site which adds credence to the hypothesis that there was intentional consumption because within this little domestic chapel where the, those vessels were, were found, um, what, they, what, what they found were, were two mills for like either grinding wheat or maybe even like fashioning a beer, uh, and they didn't find any ergot in the mills. So the fact that it was inside this ritual vessel, which is the, the shape and size of the kind of cup that were used by the devotees of Dionysus in this... Uh, Hellenistic domestic shrine of sorts, uh, combined with the evidence in the jaw, I mean, really led the archaeologists to believe that there was something strong there. But I haven't seen an ergot find quite like that anywhere else. Do they know of any way that they would cultivate this ergot? Is there some sort of a, a theory as to how they, because ergot's a, it's a fungus, right? Mm -hmm. 
and they know it, it grows on wheat, right? Yeah, it's more common on, on rye, but it happens across the cereal grains. And as far as we know, it's been happening as long as we've had agriculture, which is at least 12,000 years. So the, the big question is, is what spawned that, that revolution, the agricultural revolution? Was it, was it to, uh, to start baking bread or to start brewing beer? It's actually a pretty good debate that goes back to the 1950s between Sauer and Braidwood, these two professors. Did we, did we, uh, did we first settle down into a settled life uh, and, and start growing grain to make bread or to brew beer? And there's, there's good reason to suggest that maybe it was actually the beer mm. and this, um, this religion of brewing that brought people together in the first place. And if, if you're brewing, then it's pretty, it's, it's, it's foreseeable at, at the very least that ergot would pop up on that agriculture. Now, does it go back 12,000 years? We don't, we don't know. We don't even know if brewing goes back that far. Mm. Um, I think the, the oldest evidence for, for beers are places like, um, uh, like Godin Tepe, which is like uh, 3500 BC. And we have some evidence for some kind of brewing at Gobekli Tepe, for example, 9th millennium BC. And then we have these mortars, these stone mortars in Israel uh, that were dated to around 13,000 years ago, mm. uh, for, where at least there's evidence of malting and mashing if not fermentation. So we know that grain goes back a long time. The question is, how far back does the ergot go with it? And when did we discover that ergot had these other, uh, these other capacities? Uh, because it's not a very pleasant experience. I mean, e even to this day, if you're brewing beer, you want to avoid ergot for lots of reasons. Well, people have died from ergot poisoning, right? Like yeah. That was, there was a whole village in France that accidentally got ergot poisoned. Yeah, the Pont d'Esprit. Yeah. yeah. And there was an island, um, Alicuri. That, that's a great one. There's a great Vice article about that, uh, about the, the ergot poisonings and people, people seeing witches and people seeing mm. all the... <laughs> yeah. What a weird fucking thing that some fungus that grows on your food causes you to wildly hallucinate and think you're losing your mind. Mm. And it might have been responsible for the Salem witch trials. Hmm. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah, they think that. That's yeah. one of the speculations. Yeah. Makes sense. There was late frost, apparently, mm -hmm. or early frost, rather, mm -hmm. which apparently uh, contributes to the growth of ergot on rye. The rye wolves. You know they're called the rye wolves, by the way? The rye wolves? The rye wolves. Yeah, it was, they, they were thought to be... Um, there's a mythology around where the where the ergot comes from. And there's other, in, in German, there's a lot of different words for it. And uh, they call it like uh, afterkorn and totenkorn, like like death kernel and oh. uh, the mad the mad kernel. Mm. Uh, and they think that it was um, the, the, the 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 mad wolves running through the fields, leaving behind this. These, oh wow! These hallucinatory fungi. That's how much they were scared of wolves. I see they, that they made wolves responsible for <laughs> tripping too. <laughs> well, I ba imagine back then, if you were paranoid and tripping, you would really think about wolves. Mm. You know. <laughs> I mean, back then that was a real primary concern. If you went on a hike and you're by yourself and all you had is like a single shot musket. <laughs> We're going to go down another wolves rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. Um, did they have the ability, when, when did they have the ability to recognize what ergot was, I wonder? Like when did they recognize that, oh, it's this particular part mm. of the grain that's giving us an issue? This thing that's on the grain. I mean, uh, we figured out ergotism, I mean, at least in the Middle Ages. I'm not sure how much further th than that. But throughout the Middle Ages, there were lots of bouts of ergotism. Um, but were there bouts of people using it recreationally? 
Not that no, not that we know of. It was usually accidental. Hmm. That that's why it's such a strange fungus. Yeah, and and why the history of its uh, of the chemical synthesis of LSD is so strange because. Uh, you know, Hoffman famously was not looking for LSD. Right. Right. He was working in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, he was looking for something to induce labor. Yeah. So it was kind of an accident, and didn't realize until years later what he'd what he'd synthesized until 1943. Mm. Uh, so before that, um, I mean, outside that that medicinal context, it was typically seen with lots of uh, lots of suspicion. It was. I mean, it's it's toxic, dangerous stuff. Yeah, and if it poisons your whole village and everybody starts freaking out. <laughs> what, do we have any artwork or anything else that would indicate that there was possibly mushroom consumption? I, mean, I know that exists in some ancient religious artworks. Hmm. There's depictions of mushrooms. Is there any of that from the, the any of the ancient Greek periods? Um, I never really saw convincing evidence for uh, for mushrooms. Um, among the ancient Greeks, but there are, I mean, there's like Neolithic evidence for, for mushrooms, both in, in North Africa and then also in, in Siberia. There's the famous pictographs, the mushroom pictographs, the, the pegtimel. Where's that? Uh, in, si- in Siberia, uh, the, fam- the pegtimel um, pictographs. Mm. I wrote an article about How this. How old are these? Um, 1500 BC or the, the, if you look up, I wrote an article for Big Think, um, but that tracks some of the the better data that we have across time for this stuff. Can't wait to see that. Got something? Oh yeah, that's yeah. He found it. Interesting. Oh, so they have a mushroom over their head. Yeah, that's kind of wild. Oh, and they look at them. They look like they're tripping balls. <laughs> that's wild. And there's mushrooms on the ground there. Look at that animals and the mushrooms i'm sure we i think we talked about this before mckenna's stoned ape theory mm-hmm. which is very fascinating that that picture is crazy though so that's that's from siberia wow very interesting that N- those people from thousands of years ago made those drawings of a human figure with a mushroom above its head they're old too i think it's 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 bronze age i mean they're they're pretty old um there's a, there's an older one in, in north africa um, it's called Tassili Tassili Najer. So if you Tassili and then N apostrophe A J J E R, that one's even older. It could be Neolithic. Uh, so we're talking several thousands of years, even before the Pegtimel. It's through the, this bee-headed wizard priest. It's one of the most famous images. Mm-hmm. This that, is that, probably that, it, but I don't. Where's that, the? That's it. I guess that's yeah, that that's wow. one of the more famous ones. Wow. Look how cool that looks. So that was found in a, in a painted gallery there. And he's got handfuls of mushrooms. Yeah, and that's... that's <laughs> <he's>... <laughs> Imagine tripping and seeing that guy. Maybe he's there for you. But it, the crazy thing is that image, uh, especially the cleaned up version of it, mm. it really does look psychedelic. Like it, the, the geometric patterns, it's one of the things that you do see in the psychedelic states is these interconnected geometric patterns that are moving they're always like in motion like this yeah you would definitely could you definitely could see something like that hmm. mm. elsewhere in the badlands is a rock painting of mushroom men running in ecstasy amidst geometric shapes where's that one what's that one? 
don't know. I'll see if I can. Uh, yeah, see if we can find that one. Uh, wow. All right. The Tassili 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 Najer Shaman. Yeah. So that's six to nine thousand BC. Wow. Fucking cool. That's that's one of the oldest ones. Well, we know that psilocybin existed back then, and mm. we know that people experimented with food. Mm. They, they tried things to see if they're edible. Mm. The, the, again, that was the basis of McKenna's theory. Was yeah. that ancient hominids flipped over cow patties? Yeah. When the rainforest receded into grasslands, they tipped over cow patties looking for grubs and beetles, and that these mushrooms had grown these cow patties, and surely they would experiment with them. Oh wow! Yeah, that's elsewhere in the same region. Look at that. That's yeah, wild. That's pretty cool. They're just running, tripping. <laughs> they look like they're tripping too. <laughs> look at their heads. Yeah, and this like they look like they're in an ecstatic state, and they're all holding mushrooms. Wow. So there, there was a long debate about the, the, the relationship between these kinds of images and shamanism and the, the ritual consumption of psychedelics like among like rock shelters and cave art. And mm. uh, Graham, our, Graham Hancock wrote a lot about this. And it's my favorite book of his. It's called Supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he looks at all the different cave paintings going back 30,000, 40,000 years. And so there was um, always a long debate about whether or not there were there was actually some kind of relationship between those painted images, why they were why they were left behind by the uh, the priest class of the time, and, yeah. and kind of like what engendered them. And so, it's funny. Just after the book came out in the fall, I think it was of 2020, there was a discovery in California um, related to to rock art, and it was it was hailed as the first uh, unambiguous evidence for the consumption of psychedelics in connection with rock art. It's called the the Pinwheel Cave. And it got mm. it got so much press that you can you can find it pretty easily. I think the Nat Geo covered it. It was it was like headlines for uh, for for weeks. It's called the Pinwheel Cave. There you mm. go. And it's called it's called that because of the, the the image that's painted in red ochre on the ceiling of the cave. You can see him looking right there. That, that's mm-hmm. that's it's thought to be the unfurling flower of the Datura, uh, which is this very very potent very visionary flower in the nightshade family Datura. Datura is a weird one. Yeah. McKenna talked about Datura and about how he had to stop taking it because it was too weird that he was having a conversation with a man in a market and he realized in the middle of the conversation that the man thought that they were at home in his living room. <laughs> that it was it was so bizarrely transformative in terms of like the way it interfaced with reality mm. that it was just too strange. Mm. Like you would be sort of semi-functional, but thinking you're in a completely different place than you are, and thinking that it's actually happening. This, I mean, again, this this is why the history matters. Like we yeah. think, you know, a lot of the focus over the over recent years has been on the medicinal and therapeutic value of psychedelics, and to the extent they can relieve suffering, I I understand the need for research and the need to um, the need to assess safety. Right? Um, when you look into history, yeah, like. But there, there are other ways of using Datura that seem to have survived through in the pinwheel. So that was used by, by the Chumash people, for example. And they had a very specific ritual, a ceremony around the use of Datura that they left you know, explicit evidence for. That, that doesn't go back. That's, that's not prehistoric. That's only about 400 years old to the 16th century. But they knew what they were doing with Datura. And they're not sure exactly what, but they say there's these great papers written on the Chumash and Datura saying how they, they would use it in, in order to, to look beyond the surface of things 
and in, in some cases to communicate with dead ancestors. And you see that a lot, communication with, with, with the ancestors. Mm. And so whether it was some sort of puberty ritual or initiation rite, they clearly knew uh, the dosing and, and correct administration of Datura. And they weren't alone, by the way. There were other folks in the Americas. My friend Danny Newman has done some awesome research around something called the black drink. You have to look up uh, the, the black drink. Mm. It's from the Mississippian um, indigenous communities. And there were some studies done a few years ago that tested these vessels. You're asking about, about evidence. And so there's, uh, you know, beyond sort of the pictographic evidence, I love looking at the archaeochemical evidence. So in addition to the pinwheel site, first unambiguous chemical data for the connection of, of, of rock art and psychedelics, a couple of years ago there, there were some studies um, – uh, gas chromatography, mass spec studies, like real proper chemical studies d- done on the black drink. Have you heard of the black drink? No. The black drink was, was used, um, like I said, in, in these Mississippian sites. And there was a paper dated, uh, they, some of the finds from like 1100 to 1700 AD, so cent- centuries ago. And they came in the, in the, the, the this drink was prepared in these special vessels. Um, and sometimes they take the, like these anthropomorphic um, visuals. Uh, one is called like the the old woman, uh, and so w- within uh, within these vessels, they found the evidence not only for Datura, like we just saw the pinwheel cave, uh, but for the Yaupon holly. I think it's the only it's the only plant native to North America that's naturally caffeinated. Wow. It's called the the Yaupon holly, and so it was this 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 caffeinated beverage that definitively had traces of, of atropine and scopolamine in them, and those oh. th- those are the active alkaloids. In Datura, the, the same alkaloids they found through chemical analysis at the pinwheel site. So not scopolamine's a wild scopolamine. One. Yeah, that's a wild one. That's that's wild. That's the the zombie drug. Mm-hmm. That's the drug that they can literally blow in your face and get you to do their bidding. Yeah, <laughs> you've heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Colombian drug lords yeah. used to use it on people. Yeah, they'd blow it in their face. Yeah, they think that is the root of the the concept of zombies. That you know these people are just oh. Yeah, Wade Davis has written some some cool work on that. You know what it's also? It's also like when you get one of those little uh, patches to avoid seasickness, mm. dramamine. Mm. That's scopolamine. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. <laughs> but see, under the right circumstances. Right, right dose. Right, right. Yeah, the, you're on, not tripping. But if you right took dose. those dramamine patches and put them all over your fucking body. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's recommended. No, it's not. I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah. But if you did, I bet you'd trip balls. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, th- I think, if you're thinking about these uh, tribal communities and how life was very difficult um, in these, especially hunter-gatherer communities living mm. off the land, um, you needed people to have their shit together. You couldn't have ne'er-do-wells when you have 50 people that rely on each other and they all have very specific tasks, everyone is responsible for something. And you you cannot have irresponsible consumption of something that's so profound. Mm. So it makes sense within their their best interest to create a a real framework, like the correct way to use this. And also this recognition that this is a very profound and powerful experience is not to be taken lightly at all. Correct. This is not at all recreational. This is something that you're going to do because you're going to, it's going to, you're going to have a transcendent experience. Correct. And that's what we lack today. That's what we lack today. And the more you study the ancient past, whether it's in ancient Greece or a lot of my book focuses on paleo-Christianity, 
the more you see this kind of ritual. Mm. So can I can I show you some images of sure. of Paleo Christian ritual? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Let's do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love talking to you. Okay. Cool. What man. do you got, uh, Jamie? There should be a, um, a folder called Circe. Circe, like the lady from Game of Thrones. Like the lady from Game of Thrones. Yeah. And she's my favorite. So <laughs> then we'll, you'll get to know her a lot better. She's a great here. character. You'll get to know her a lot better. Shame. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> what am I looking for here? Um, it's it's in in my uh, my Google Drive. Oh no no yeah I have the folder. What do you want me to pull up? Oh the just first few pictures are just yeah just from words. the fr- just from the first one yeah we can start with with we can go into the pictures. I, I, my point I've just my point it's just words though it's, uh, it's uh, that's fine okay we can we can move forward from there so. Okay. What I'm going to show you are some images from a hypogeum. And I don't think we got around to this last time, but a hypogeum was this underground chamber, and it was the site where most of the early Christian ritual took place. So if you, if you think back to Paleo-Christianity, um, you know, between the death of Christ and Constantine, which is 300 years later, give or take, you know, Christianity was this illegal cult. It was this underground religion, in some cases literally. So the only, the only places where you would celebrate the Eucharist and the Proto-Mass were in um, at like small and in, in private homes in, in this agape meal. And then sometimes you'd go underground into these like necropolis, like the, the, these places of, of the dead. And that for some reason was the place where the Mass was celebrated. And so uh, as part of my research for the book, I went into some of these uh, underground chambers to see what the earliest Christians would have seen and some of the evidence that was left behind in, in, in terms of like frescoes. So there's no botanical, chemical analysis of what was happening in these places, but we do have images, we have frescoes, and we have the idea of what the early ritual would have looked like. And a couple of weeks ago, I reached out to the Vatican specifically to, uh, to ask them if I could show these images uh, to you today. And they Ooh. and they said yes. All right, thank uh, you, Vatican. <laughs> they're actually take back all the shit I said about you. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're actually they're they're great research partners. Um, the, it's the Pontifical Commission for Sacred Archaeology. So mm. it's the archaeological team that is responsible uh, for the preservation and conservation of all these ancient sites. And I think it's it's an aspect of of early Christianity that like very few people know about. And so uh, what was happening underground, um, if you want to go back to the first slide, just, just quickly, there was this Yale professor who sadly uh, died um, in recent years, it was Ramsey McMullen. And what he talks about are these underground, um, these underground chill-outs. They were called uh, vigilia. The Latin word for them is refrigerium, where we get the word refrigerator. So they were like underground chill-outs where uh, certainly the Romans, and it's believed the earliest Christians would have gone to celebrate um, the dead with uh, with sacramental wine, with celebratory wine. They, they would have a wine ceremony in these dank chambers underground to like usher the dead into the afterlife or bring them bring them refreshment. They were called refrigeria, uh, and so it's it's kind of unclear when the refrigeria, a, a pagan Roman ceremony, became like a proto Eucharistic Christian mass. Like the line again, the line is very blurred at this period of time. Uh, which I call the pagan continuity hypothesis, the, the, this notion that the, the, the older wine-drinking consumption by the Romans, the Greeks before them, somehow influenced, at least in some, in some cases, the earliest celebrations of the Mass. And so I just show this quickly to show 
um, that, you know, in these wine parties, uh, Ramsey has this great line saying that th- this was not just picnicking at the bottom there. He said this was religion. Mm-hmm. So even though it looks like a picnic, it looks like they were gathering over like, kind of like almost like a Mexican Day of the Dead ceremony. Like mm-hmm. they would meet by the graveyard to, uh, to remember the dead and the ancestors. Yeah, there was, there was wine and food, but this was, this was religion to the ancient Romans. And I think to, to the Romanized Christians who followed them in the first, first century, second century, third century. Um, so the next slide is um, that, that's just a bunch more text from uh, a Catholic encyclopedia, by the way, from 1907, if I'm not mistaken. And it talks about how the celebration of the dead and this funeral banquet you see right in the middle there, mm-hmm. this notion that the funeral banquet is really kind of at the core of what the early mass was. Even if you go back to the gospels, it was, you know, Jesus asking for the commemoration of this event, you know, do this in memory of me. As you do this in memory of me, remember my life, death, and eventual resurrection. This is this is sort of the the prototype for for the mass. And so it's important to remember that the funeral banquet was there to bind those together who remained faithful to the memory of Jesus after after his death. It's very similar to this Roman refrigerium. So I, I give that all that as background just to show you the first couple images from the hypogeum. So if you uh, skip to the next one, or maybe, so that, that's what it looks like when you go underground. Um, there was it was discovered in 1919, I think, as as a fiat shop around the corner, it was trying to expand into a sunken garage. They they came across these uh, the, these monuments, wow. which which is not uncommon in Greece and Italy. Yeah. And around the Mediterranean. So they found this, this, this hypogeum, which dates to the 3rd century uh, A.D. So we don't have firm dates. It could be anywhere from like 220 to 250 A.D. So this is the time period we're talking about. Um, so the, these, the, it was, the, these were tombs. They're rock-cut tombs in the hypogeum here. If you go to the next one, uh, one of the first things I saw when I went into the hypogeum was this, which... Uh, you know, it's, it's a little strange because, again, you're trying to figure out if this is a Roman pagan refrigerium or if this is a Christian celebration of some sort of Eucharist. Because, again, th- this site is controlled by the Vatican. The Vatican has preserved this uh, for, uh, uh, for, for reasons. Um, and, you know, it's been said by the Pontifical Commission that th- th- these are some of the most explicit and concrete evidence for the origins of Christianity. So this is, you know, whether this is purely pagan or Christian is sort of a— a moment of, of debate, but you know, if you just look at it, what's odd is that you see 12 people gathered around a table. And when you think of 12 people gathered around a table, you think of something like the Last Supper. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's pretty clear that what's important to this dinner is the chalice that, that's being lifted by, uh, by the servant there, or maybe it's a priest of some sort. So it's clear that whatever's happening, wine is important to this gathering of 12 people. The interesting part is the woman who's appearing in the back. If you look closely, um, there's sort of like the, this effigy of a woman descending exactly from the background to the foreground. It's thought that she is uh, Aurelia Prima, and Aurelia was one of the, the, the dead women to whom the hypogeum was, was dedicated. And so what they think, is that's her, this is one, one of the Vatican's interpretations, is that that's her emerging from the world of the dead to take place in this funeral banquet in this ceremony. Mm. So we're not really sure. How do they interpret that? Because she's not seated at the table. And because what they, what they think this is, is that whenever, especially because of, of the place that we're in, which is underground, that when wine is being served um, at a refrigerium, that the Romans would, would habitually do this in order to commune with the dead. 
not as a picnic, but as religion, as Ramsey McMullen says. So this was, this was their religion for, for keeping alive that relationship to the dead and refreshing the dead mm. in the afterlife. And when you went there to celebrate them, they would appear. Oh. And Ramsey has this great line in his scholarship where he says, the dead themselves participated. Which one of my favorite lines in his research. The dead themselves participated. Whoa. So, so that, that's, that's Aurelia participating in a funeral banquet that's happening underground. Okay, so if, if we go to the next slide. So again, unclear if that's, um, if that's Christian or pagan. And then uh, you see some of these images. That's interpreted as Jesus as the good shepherd from the Gospel of John. You see the, the goats down below. So that's, and this is, um, that's either interpreted uh, as St. Paul or Plotinus. Plotinus was this Neoplatonic philosopher uh, who lived in, around that time in the third century. Um, and so it's unclear if that's St. Paul or Plotinus, or maybe it's Paul using the image of Plotinus to call up the, the, the imagery. And again, everything is very ambiguous because Christianity is illegal. So you don't, go, you don't go down there and paint very explicit images of Jesus or the Last Supper or, or Christian elements because you could get in trouble for that, obviously. Mm. So there's a lot of ambiguity in these frescoes. Uh, so if you move, pla- move past that, this, this is the, the most important one which is kind of, uh, kind of mind-boggling. So this is just to the right of that banquet scene, and it's called the Homeric fresco. And it's called the Homeric fresco because it seems to portray a very famous scene from Homer's Odyssey. Uh, and it's, it's when uh, Odysseus is stuck on the island with Circe, the witch Circe, the prototypical witch of antiquity, Circe. He's stuck on, on, on the island with her, and the three dudes you see there on the bottom to the left have just been transformed from pigs back into men. It's one of the most famous scenes in Book 10 of the Odyssey where Circe uh, delivers a potion. She concocts a potion, and in Greek it says that the, the verb they, they use for concoct the potion is kukio, like she, just like the ancient potion at Eleusis. This is one of the mythical. Um, this is one of the mythical precedents for what would become the actual kukion that was used in the Eleusinian mysteries. And so she she uses the, this this mythical kukion, um, in which she um, she casts these drugs. It says that she puts drugs into this potion to transform the men into pigs, then back to men. And so it's a very. I mean, like of all the twenty-seven thousand and changed lines of the Odyssey and the Iliad, it's, it's, it's a particularly strange image to evoke from Homer because Circe, amongst all the many things she's famous for, is for being a witch and, and for having this, this profound knowledge of the botanical world and potions and things that we might call psychedelics today. Mm-hmm. And so it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a really strange image to have there. And um, so the Vatican produced this, this monograph uh, over a decade ago where one of their scholars, Alexia Latini, goes over this in great detail to, to demonstrate why exactly this is, this is Circe. And up above, that's another image of Circe with all her animals on this magical island. And what they found there exactly was, was cinnabar. Um, and during the conservation process, they, they were able to identify the, uh, the mercury sulfide that had been used to paint this, this red image of, of cinnabar around the house, which is a, a, a very telling detail because there's a line just before this in the Odyssey where it talks about the fiery smoke coming out of Circe's, Circe's palace. So between the fiery smoke and the cinnabar and, um, and the, the web down below, the, there, there's a lot of certainty that this is, this is probably Circe. Um, if you go to the next slide. What is, can I ask you, yeah. what are those people laying down? If you cl- zoom in on Circe, 
Yeah. Up above. What are those people laying down? Yeah, What's that's that supposed to represent. That's the the interpretation from the monograph is that that's some sort of funeral bier. So. Oh, so those are dead people. That could be dead people. Hmm. Yeah. Which is also strange. Hmm. What's that? Satan. <laughs> no, like Satan. That we can't make out. So the, the, the loom was another telltale sign. So there's the fiery smoke at the palace, and the loom is another telltale sign. So this is, if it were just this, you, you would think, okay, may, maybe, uh, maybe it's just Circe and a loom. But if you go to the next slide, there's, there's a, uh, and the next one, yeah, there's, there's a manuscript um, at the, in, the, in, the, in the Pope's library uh, called the Virgilius Vaticanus. And you can find this online. And in the Virgilius Vaticanus manuscript, which is from about 400 to 430 AD, there's this picture of Circe and the loom, which corresponds to Circe and the loom on the right. So they, they know for sure, you know, with, with relative certainty at least, uh, that there's, there, there's some image continuity between Circe and the loom. And she talk, she's talked about in the ancient literature as, as always being at the loom. Uh, so... The confidence is rising. This, this and for is... folks who don't know what a loom is, it's how you create cloth with threads. <laughs> Some people, yeah, you know. yeah, that's true. So, th- th- with this, if you're just listening to this, what she has is like if you've ever seen people make cloth in a, in a traditional way with a loom, she's got the, the, the. Why did they depict her with a loom? Why was she known as a person who makes cloth? Because that, that's what Homer said. That's what Homer says in his mm-hmm. epic poetry. And that, that's what Virgil also says in his epic poetry. So uh, Homer writes the Odyssey. Centuries later, uh, Virgil writes the Aeneid. Um, that's sort of the, the mythical founding of, of Rome, the main character Aeneas. And in both versions, there's a Circe character. So this Circe character survives for centuries in the ancient world, uh, from, from the Greek to, to the Latin. Uh, and in, in both cases, uh, the, the loom is mentioned. And also, what's mentioned um, in, in these passages are, are the fact that, that Circe uses potent herbs. In the Latin, it says potentibus herbis. So she's using mm. potent herbs and mixing up potions to transform these men into pigs and vice oh. versa. So, like, it's a, very, it's, a very strange, it's a very strange idea to have a pagan witch uh, in a fresco that's been preserved in this Paleo-Christian monument. Uh, combined with this, this refrigerium, sort of Eucharistic celebration of the dead. And then in the last few images, um, what it depicts is a woman being initiated into these, into these high mysteries. Mm. So things you don't normally associate with early Christianity. Um, Jamie, there's uh, just in, in the last slide real quick, I just want to show you that this image of the, of the woman. Um, so there, there are three different, three different chambers in the hypogeum. Um, if you go back a couple, and I'll show you these two in a second. Yeah, there, there, that's fine. So the, that circle, that, that's on the ceiling of one of the final chambers. And there was a German scholar, Himmelman, in the 1970s, who attempted to, um, to interpret that image. And he says it's some kind of initiation typical of Dionysian or Eleusinian initiation. He says the way the wand is held is typical to what you might find uh, with the god Dionysus. And, and, and true enough, if, if you look around at different artifacts, there's the Borghese vase on the left, which is from about 40 BC. It's now in the Louvre. You see the thyrsus, the wand above the head of the initiate uh, who's dropped his, his sacramental cup. And on the right, that's the Villa of the Mysteries um, in Pompeii. Uh, uh, which goes back 2,000 years, obviously. And again, you see this notion of the wand 
over the head of the initiate. So you have a female initiate, uh, which is, um, you know, calling forth images of, of pagan Eleusinian Dionysian initiation next to an image of Circe, a pagan witch, next to this image of this refrigerian banquet. And it's all very ambiguous. Why would, why would a Christian descend into these chambers to celebrate uh, these, these wine mysteries um, with the dead? And as you go outside the Hypogeum to other catacombs around Rome, I mean, just, just quickly, in 30 seconds, I can show you other images uh, of, of different women consecrating the wine. Yeah, that way. Yeah, and the next one. Yeah, there. That that's perfect. So you see in Latin there, it's written Agape uh, Misce Nobis. So that's um, they think that's Agape is the woman's name. Misce Nobis is mix it, mix it for us. So uh. what they're saying is is not pour the wine for us, but mix it up for us. Agape and Agape is a very Greek word. Uh, it means love. And so the, you you find all these Greek connotations, despite the fact that we're in Italy. Um, if you look at the next one, it's very similar. Uh, it says Irene da Calda. Uh, Irene, Irene could be another Greek name. It means peace. And just like miske nobis, mix it up for us, you see da calda. We don't really know what calda is, but if you go to the, the next slide, there was a scholar. Yeah, this, this, there's some great text here. Uh, he tries to interpret what calda is. It's not certain. Um, it seems to have been more than an infusion. Apparently, it was a mixture of hot water, wine, and drugs. Wow. So the the question becomes what what kind of what kind of potions were were being mixed in these underground chambers? Um, this is at a different catacomb of of Marcellinus and Pietro. I showed you the hypogeum, and so there's you know this th these were the places where where wine was being consumed by Paleo Christians in antiquity, um, and I think it's fascinating. It is, and it raises lots of questions. A lot. <laughs> But it only makes sense. We know those compounds existed, and we know that people take those compounds and have these profound experiences. And when you had no explanation for that, and, and you didn't know like how it was, you know, hmm. interfering or interacting with the human mind and what chemicals they were, and like, of course you would, you would lean on those. I mean, you would probably that would be like the primary source of some sort of an attempt of understanding the, the, the great mystery of the life. Hmm. Does it makes sense. And the dead are, remember, the dead are participating. That's why. Right? It's a funeral banquet. Yeah. And you see this time and again in these ancient mysteries, this notion of a, of a funeral banquet and the ritual consumption of, of powerful compounds. McKenna believed that when you entered into psychedelic states, you'd enter into a well of souls, disembodied hmm. souls. Or there was, it was at least theorized. That was like one of his thoughts, like that that's what you were experiencing. Hmm. Yeah, it's the same with it's the same with Dionysus, actually, and this notion of uh, sort of the Greek Halloween was called anthesteria, and there was this uh, this ritual of un uncorking the the wine jugs, and out of them you would see different different spirits and entities fly out. So there's there's something there's the some there dead was participated. The, the dead the dead the dead themselves participated. Um, so, it, I mean I I find the iconography like really interesting, like having gone to Catholic school my whole life because you don't 
You don't really hear about the hypogeum. No. You don't hear about paleo-Christianity much, actually. Well, what is the, the source of the Eucharist? What, what's the original Eucharist? Uh, the body of Christ. I mean, well, in, in the book, I, I, I explore the potential Greek origin of that, at least, at least in some communities. I mean, the notion of, the notion of consuming the body and blood uh, was, you know, th- that, that wasn't born like 2,000 years ago with Jesus. There, you know, even the blood of Dionysus, uh, the wine of Dionysus is called the blood by uh, Timotheus of Miletus 400 years before Jesus. So this notion that wine is blood and should be consumed in a sacramental fashion, I mean, that, was, that had been around for, for a while. And this notion of, of theophagy, right? You see this in lots of different world cultures, uh, the consuming of the God to become the God. Mm-hmm. And in the Greek world, theophagy really takes its place with, with Dionysus and these mysteries, much more so than the Eleusinian mysteries that we talked about. And so for the ancient Greeks, like to imbibe the wine was to imbibe the god, the god Dionysus. And so the question becomes, was, was, was Dionysus the god of wine or was Dionysus the god of intoxication, right? And, and psychotropic plants or fungi or poisons or medicine, because the wine of the time, like we've talked about, was routinely mixed with different, different plants and compounds. And so the enthusiasm that resulted from drinking that wine was, it's been described as like the central aspect of Greek tragedy, for example. Like when we saw the theater of Dionysus on the southern slope of the Acropolis, uh, they think that that wine was consumed there in another way to experience communion with, with Dionysus. The wine at the theater was called trima, and trima in Greek means like rubbed or pounded. And Professor Ruck, for example, thinks that it's, it, you know, it, it signified the different things that were pounded, rubbed into the wine mm-hmm. to create this sort of mass possession that took place at the theater between the live audience and the actors, between the actors and the dead persons, in some cases, that they were, they were, uh, they were acting out. Uh, remember? I mean, we take it for granted now, but to stand on stage and you know, spew out lines that belong to a dead person is like closer to necromancy than entertainment. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that was a trippy thing to begin with. So you combine that together with this, this trima wine and this very sacred ritual, it, it, it goes well beyond the, the bounds of, of entertainment. Like for, for them, there was a religious purpose to the theater and to comedy and to tragedy. Wow. It's so... It's so interesting. You would love more concrete evidence of what they consumed other than this one vessel, which is it's very interesting. And it's it, it makes sense that one vessel contained ergot and that this would lead you to believe that this was a part of what they were doing. Yeah, but it's not enough for me either. I mean, that, that's right. what I, that's what I've been doing with my time the past couple of years. <laughs> Thank God you're doing it. <laughs> I'm not convinced either. I'm not convinced. I'm, 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 I, I try and be a real skeptic about this. That's good. I try and be a genuine skeptic. There's, there's this incredibly compelling piece of data from Spain, from Hellenistic Spain, what is today Spain, 2,200 years ago. I would love to find something in Greece. I'd love to find something at Eleusis. This, this was part of my presentation uh, for the Eleusis Symposium a couple weeks ago. What kind of artifacts do we possess or do people possess from Eleusis? I, I, I asked this question of uh, the archaeologists on site there, of, uh, of the government folks, and uh, there's an American school of classical studies too, which has been excavating in the area uh, for, uh, for decades, obviously. Um, so the, the last time I went to Eleusis to ask Poppy about this, they have uh, a lot of different vessels actually. Um, I'll show you. Um, Jamie, if you want to go into the Eleusis uh, file, I, th- I think it's the first file up there. 
and I think we see an image of you, by the way. And then oh, really? Yeah, and then there'll, there'll be some there'll be some vessels we can look at. Okay. Um, so there's there's lots of different. There's you first. Oh, that's me. Yeah. That's me at that site. I was freaking out. <laughs> I kind of was. I remember walking around it just feeling so strange. Yeah. What was what was going on that day? Well, I knew where I was, which you always have to take into account. Right. I knew that this was supposedly the site where these people, well, not supposedly, this was the site where these people had these experiences. Hmm. And there was something about that site. That, whether or not you believe that places have memory, they certainly certainly feel like they do. And that, that place felt like there was a memory attached to it in some strange way, hmm. like a lot of memory. There was a there's something very profound had happened there, but maybe that was because I knew something very profound had happened there. But there was a quite a long moment, like five or ten minutes, where I was just standing there under that thing, just like feeling it. Yeah, that was the that's the plutonion. So yeah. that's that's the mouth of hell, where Persephone would emerge from the underworld, mm. and you were you were locked in there for a while. I was just trying to empty my head and just try to figure out how much of this is just suggestion and bullshit, <laughs> you know? You're a good skeptic, too. Well, it's, you have to be. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll buy into your own nonsense. Yeah. You know, and I was trying to figure it out. What, what is this? Like, what's this feeling that I have here? It was, it was very intense. But it's also also an incredible place to be, just to, even if the, the feeling didn't happen. Like, just to know that you're there in this place where these people have these experiences and the wonder of what was it like, hmm. you know, could imagine. If you had the ability to travel back in time to any point in, in human history, where would you go? I, have to, I can only choose one? Yeah, just one. Maybe the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Ooh. Just to find out if it really happened? Hmm. What if it didn't? Would you tell anybody? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be in big trouble. Yeah. I think I would choose uh, ancient Egypt. What do you want to see? I want to see the construction of the pyramids. Huh. I want to see why. Hmm. I want to see what was civilization like back then. I want to see what the, what's the real timeline. Hmm. Like, what are we really looking at? Are we really looking at 2,500 B.C.? Are we looking at 10,000, 20,000 B.C.? Like, what, what are we looking at? They don't really know. It's a lot of guesswork, especially when you're dealing with, um, you know, you can't carbon date stone. But just knowing the construction, the, the expertise that was involved, the, the, it appears the use of some sort of a drill. There was like some things that cored stone, some things that cut stone. They have no understanding of how these people were able to do this. Just the scope, just the scale of the construction, the massive stones. You know, the obelisks, hmm. the, these enormous things that were cut from quarries hundreds of miles away and somehow or another transported and, and assembled into this thing that we wouldn't be able to do today, no matter what anybody tells you. Certainly wouldn't be able to do in a human lifetime. 2,300,000 stones, some weighing uh, upwards of 50 to 80 tons, hundreds of miles away, carted through the mountains, no clear roads. How do you get them down? What are you doing? How'd you get them? What'd you do? That's, to me, the big one. Have you spent time there? No. 
No, we were supposed to do both in this one trip. That's but too I said, much. It's too much. Yeah, it's, you know, you have young kids. You don't want them to fucking freak out. <laughs> oh, can I go home and see my friends? <laughs> you know, you don't want to drag kids away for too long. But, but I think it was important for them to see the ruins. You know, to see Delos and to see all mm. these other different places, and to just take into just see a place where people used to live and thrive, and then they didn't. You know, and now you're walking around these areas and. And, um, but to me, Egypt, it's cause it's so, it's so above and beyond everything else that exists mm. in terms of just the, the scale of the construction. What did they do? When you see the great pyramid of Giza, it's just like, what did they do? Mm. How did they do this? Mm. Who, who, why, what was the purpose? You know, there's, all, there's been all the speculation that at one point in time there was a, a burial chamber for a pharaoh, but there's no evidence of that. So what is it, and why, and how? And put it on the agenda for next summer. Yeah, and even then you're just going to be walking around freaking out, <laughs> 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 which I think is great. But um, I would, I would, if there was a place that you could go back in time and see one thing, That's that would cool. be the thing that I would see. There was um, <clears throat> there was a recent study on. Uh, a psychedelic potion out of Egypt for the first time. Mm. Remember we talked about uh, some of the first unambiguous evidence for psychedelics in rock art and, and this Mississippian site. I think it was only, was it th earlier this year actually? Uh, Jamie, if you want to look up, it's a great Google term, uh, psychedelic blood cocktail. Mm. Psychedelic blood cocktail and maybe Egypt. Um, oh, there it is. They drank a gnarly brew of hallucinogenic drugs and human blood. Whoa. The drink also contained a few secret ingredients like vaginal mucus. Uh, <laughs> how do you know that? <laughs> Look at that dude. That looks like the kind of guy you'd see if you drank blood and psychedelics. That's Bess. B-E-S. That Be seems like the dude. Bess was the giver of oracles and dreams, and it was thought that you would consume this beverage and go into an incubation at his temple. Um, wow. Which was not, not too different from, from Greek incubation temples. Look at this. He was described as part dwarfish, part feline. Yeah. Whoa. Best followers believed he could provide protection from danger while simultaneously averting harm and being able with his powers to prevent evil. Hmm. So like all cults, best heads <laughs> were required to drink some gnarly stuff rather than the classic... Poisoned Kool-Aid, though, the members of this sect guzzled a mysterious liquid from ceramic vessels decorated with the effigy of the or the head of Bess, known as Bess Vases. The Bess figure was revered as a protective genius. It might be assumed that this liquid drunk from these mugs might be considered benefit, beneficent. Interesting. So what do they find that's in these things? Well, so it came from Tampa, which is crazy. Like there wasn't, I mean, a, at some point it was in Egypt. But they had this vessel sitting around. In Tampa, Florida? In Tampa, Florida. Oh, whoa. From the second century BC, which, which is why this science is so interesting. Th th these can be vessels that sit in museums for decades, mm. and they still preserve these compounds. So they did um, liquid chromatography tandem mess spec, this chemical analysis. And what they, they found a number of different things. The mucus was because they did proteomics as well. They did a human protein analysis. And they, they found something that was, it was either mucus or other human body fluids. So that's why they, they call it the psychedelic blood cocktail. Why do they think it was vaginal mucus? <sighs> Because that's one of the possibilities is either oral or vaginal mucus. I'm not Why sure. would they go with vaginal? Because it's a spit. good headline. <laughs> but it seems like spit would be more likely. I would say spit. It seems like 
I'm going to say spit and yeah. blood. Yeah. Getting the vaginal mucus seemed like that's a, like a big ordeal. But was there any indication of why they chose the vaginal? Why, why they would even say? Not, it? not that I know of. Mm. Beyond the proteomic analysis, because that seems like I know it's a weird leap. <laughs> You find mucus. Like, how much different is mucus from spit to vaginal mucus? Okay. In addition to mucus. Yeah. Also... We know that people spit in fermented beverages. Right. You know? Right. Like, there's there's certain alcoholic beverages that the women will, will chew up certain things and spit them into a vessel, and then people drink it. It, it aids in the fermentation, right? Hmm. And that, that's what they, that, that could have happened here, too. Is they found evidence of fermentation, probably grape. So this is some kind of wine cocktail. And in addition, they found... Uh, the chemical uh, signifiers for Nymphaea carulea, which is the blue water lily. And they also uh-huh. found um, uh, Paganum harmala, or seeds that either came from uh, like the Syrian rue, seeds from Syrian rue mm. or Paganum harmala, harmel. Isn't uh, that an MAO inhibitor? Correct. Okay. Yeah, correct. Harmala. Yeah, yeah. Harmala. Okay. So they were taking something, and then, so it was very similar to ayahuasca in that regard. Because an MAO inhibitor would be something that would allow at least uh, dimethyltryptamine to be orally active. If that's what was happening here, but I, th- I think I think blue water lily is orally active, mm. so it's unclear what the. Maybe it made it more profound. Maybe. So blue water lily, what is that supposed to be like? Um, there have been some some recreations of that. There's there's a great YouTube uh, called Sacred Weeds. If you ever look at Sacred Weeds, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's from like so many rabbit holes. To I go know. Down so on I know. YouTube. <laughs> It's amazing. <laughs> There's so many to go down. <laughs> also, five terrifying Datura trips. You have to like, oh, at some sure. point. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah Datura. So this water lily, what is yeah. it supposed to be like? Uh, I don't think so. Again, this is where dosing comes in. They, mm-hmm. they, the sacred weed series, it was a series in the UK. They tried to recreate this, and obviously they got the dosing wrong. Um, so I think... Were they ineffective? Is that why you say obviously they got the dosing yeah, wrong? Yeah, because if you look at the participants, it's really funny. Uh, they get kind of giddy and euphoric at some point, but mm-hmm. they don't have anything uh, hallucinatory. Did they take it with Harmala? Uh, no, no. They weren't doing the psychedelic blood cocktail. They, okay. just, they were just doing the... Just the water Just lily. the water lily. Maybe yeah. the water lily has to be taken with Harmala to have the profound effects, the MAO inhibitor. This, it makes sense. This is why the science matters and, yeah. the, and the data matters. Yeah. Not because we want to recreate blood cocktails, but... Of course, but we do. <laughs> so it seems like there's a lot of vessels that could be tested if we're aware of these vessels. Everywhere. Yeah, and they Everywhere. haven't been studied. Some are sitting in, in museums in Tampa. Mm. Uh, some are sitting in, in new di- fresh dig sites. Some are sitting in museums in Greece and Italy. That's, Whoa, look at that, that that's the That's the best vessel from 2nd century B.C. Can I get a recreation of that on eBay? They, <laughs> does somebody make that? That seems dope. I want to drink my coffee out of that. Someone's got to make Joe a best vessel. Fuck yeah. For coffee in the morning, that would be a way to start your day off correctly. <laughs> you spitting it? Drink out of that. No, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Drink out of that guy's head. Drinking out of that guy's head would be pretty fucking cool. Um, so with this this uh, blue water lily and the, the this, so they, they know that those two things were in there, harmala and blue water lily. Mm-hmm. Was there anything else other than fermentation? So presumably some alcohol. There was uh, some alcohol. We're not sure in in what amounts. There was just some evidence of fermentation. Um, Aside from the harmala and the blue water lily and uh, maybe some honey. Which was also used as a preservative for psychedelics. Right. 
It was one of the ways that they preserved um, mushrooms. They would preserve mushrooms in honey. Yeah, and that shows up a lot in some of these ancient potions. Mm -hmm. uh, the combination, in fact, of um, uh, potassium gluconate is the chemical signifier for that. And they often find that with tartaric acid, which shows wine, and calcium oxalate, which shows beer. And so you mm. see these. Uh, Pat McGovern did a, a few studies on that, which shows sort of like this beer, wine, mead concoction. Oh. And he famously recreated one called the Midas Touch with the Dogfish Head Brewery, the Midas Touch. Oh, that, interesting. That, that was their version. How is it? Any good? Yeah, it's great. Oh. Yeah, it's great. Um, has there been any talk of these vessels that we do know are available of running studies on those? Yes. This, so this, this, is, this is at least part of what Andrew Coe wants to do at the Yale Peabody Museum. Mm. I mean, he's already sitting on thousands and thousands of samples oh. from all over the Mediterranean that haven't been properly assayed. And what within. If they're all filled with drugs. I mean, I mean <laughs> boy, that would rewrite everything. Yeah. No matter what they're filled with. And again, right. his job's not to look for drugs, of course. he's looking for ancient organics. You're and such so a good academic. <laughs> I love how you bring it back down to normal. You just... <laughs> Joe, focus. Focus. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being Science. here. Science. Thank you. Appreciate you. <laughs> but it could be it could be fragrance or medicine. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, Let's find out what's in there. Incense, Kifi right. incense, this famous Egyptian incense. Uh, you know, he famously found the, the Tel Cabri wine, and they, they announced that in 2014 from, from Galilee at Tel Cabri. It was wine mixed with all kinds of things. We talked about last time, I think, like honey and storax and terebinth, cypress, cedar, cinnamon, all kinds of fun things. So, like, uh, he's been able to show that, that wines of the time were routinely mixed with different things. You're seeing the, the blood cocktail. Mm -hmm. You're seeing the detour use at Pinwheel. Um, and you're seeing um, uh, the black drink and the Mississippian sites. I mean, this yeah, is all relatively new. we didn't that too deeply. Like, what was the black, black drink made with? Uh, Datura and Yaupon Haile. And that was the, the, was the caffeine. And it, what does it look like, this uh, yapon holly? Is it a fruit? Is it a leaf? It's, like, a, it's a plant. It's a plant, and it's, it contains caffeine? Yeah, I found something. I was trying to bring it up, but okay. I didn't get to it yet. It, its scientific name is something interesting. Um, Elex vomitoria. Yeah. Oh. Which means, makes you puke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was interesting. A it was a purgative, apparently. Ooh, right. Like a lot of these are. Yeah. 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 You purge, and then you have this experience. Uh, interesting. Interesting. So detura and caffeine mixed together. Is it a, a high dose of caffeine? Yeah, like six times as high as a cup of coffee almost. Whoa. Whoa. It's the only caffeinated plant found in North America, I think right. is what I read too. Right. Um, is there any um, history of humans using it other than in that fashion? Like people eat it? The Yalpon holly? Yeah, like they do when they chew coca leaves in order to get energy. You can find YouTube videos of people making like a, a, a caffeinated tea today. Oh. People who, who know how to, how to manipulate Yalpon Sounds like you fucking kill yourself with that kind of caffeine tea. <laughs> Right? There you go. That's what it looks like. So it's little berries, huh? Yeah. Plants. and So is the um, fruit of the tree what gives you caffeine, or is it the leaves? I think it's the leaves. It's like, it's like North American mate. Oh, interesting. Have you tried this? No. It says Yapon Holly drink for sale. Yeah, I'm trying to see what... Oh, you could buy it? I would imagine someone knows that you could... Black drink Wikipedia. Yeah. yeah. Go shopping. Click the shopping link. <laughs> Just go shopping for Yapon Holly. Interesting. There it is. Tea. Interesting. So you can get it as a, as a tea online. I wonder if it's legit. 
Because it seems like that would be, like, super potent. Like, they'd have to tell you. It's like a monster energy drink in one little <laughs> tiny cup, right? Wouldn't it be? What does it say there, Jamie, for uh, right. caffeine content? I'm looking, that's what I was looking for. It doesn't say on that part of it. Hmm. It says it makes a half gallon, that little thing. is like a concentrate, like cold brew almost, I'm guessing. Hmm. Oh, interesting. So you make a half gallon out of that one little thing. You, you have to mix it up. So it seems like we have a wealth of things to test for, but a scarcity of tests that have actually been run. And a scarcity of testers, mm. which is why Andrew Coe's work is so important to, to support. Um, and as a result of uh, conversations like this and the book coming out, uh, we're, we're launching a foundation called the Athanatos Foundation, which means immortal in Greek. And part of the genesis behind that foundation is to help to support different work like this, uh, which is largely unfunded um, mm. and unacknowledged. Uh, so there aren't many archaeochemists doing the work that Andrew's doing, which I think is super important for reconstituting some of this really cool history. I mean, a lot of which is just emerging in the past couple of years. Like a lot of the things we're discussing are things that came out after the book was published. Mm. Uh, so there's there's a lot of cool work. Um, and again, between the sciences and the humanities, uh, you know, people who are textualists and like to to compare this, folklorists, anthropologists. There's uh, a lot of disciplines that can converge on these studies. And in addition to the work at Yale, there's been some uh, a lot of interest at Harvard, too, uh, around psychedelic studies outside the clinical setting, uh, which is really cool. Um, so not only at the, at the Harvard Divinity School, but Harvard Law School uh, and the Faculties of Arts and Sciences, uh, they have a humanities center there. Um, and I'm just about to launch, actually, uh, a series of fellowships together with, uh, with Michael Pollan. Uh, between Harvard and Berkeley to continue looking at these kinds of questions, again, outside the clinical setting. So looking with a lens of the social sciences and the humanities, historians, anthropologists, uh, you know, cultural criticism, you name it, like taking a look at these kinds of studies from, from very different lenses to see what we can learn about the ways that our ancestors interacted with the natural world. So speaking of Michael Pollan, how's the caffeine treating you? <laughs> <laughs> Did it do anything for you? I definitely feel it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah do you feel it differently than you used to? <clears throat> I mean, I'm much more awake. Yeah. I'm much more awake. I feel I've been feeling very sleepy recently. Yeah. Yeah. I feel I feel much more awake. We gotta get you healthy, Brian. I know, man. Gotta, I'm gonna put you on a, a schedule. <laughs> We're gonna change your diet. That's what's most important. Yeah. Yeah. People <laughs> think of their diet as just stuff they eat that tastes good. Like you really have to think of it as the literal foundation of your structure as a biological organism. I mean, any nutrients that I do get are, are fully thanks to my wife. If it were up to me, I'd eat. Accidentally. I mean, yeah, because she, she's a great cook. <laughs> and she's very concerned about nutrition for well, me and the girls. Good. If it's just me, I would eat peanut butter all day. Oh, so well, that's not good. I know, Brian. I know. That's the problem with a lot of intellectuals. Like, I know. They, they spend so much time thinking and not enough time thinking about their body. You think of the mind as being separate from the body, but it's not. Mm. It's all one thing. And mm. if the body works better, the mind works better. Mm. Yeah. All right, I'll get on the regime. Please, please, I want to keep you healthy. When I hear about people taking so long to recover from COVID, the, the primary thing that I always ask them, do you take vitamins? Then it's almost always no. At the time, it was kind of a no. Yeah. yeah. I take more now than I did, but... But even now, you're not taking enough. No, not really. We've got to get you into that. <laughs> um, th so what's interesting also is... Um, you took a long time to write this book, The Immortality Key. You took a long time researching this. And I know that there was a lot of questions about how this would be received and whether or not this is like a 
whether it would be commercially successful, but it's been so successful that they ran out of copies like really quickly, <laughs> right? They fucked up, yeah. right? I'm not sure if I can say that, but yeah. The, uh, let's yeah. just let's say kindly they underestimated the demand. I think the demand was underestimated. Yeah. Following our conversation in September 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't expect that either, and there were lots of issues with with printers. And the, sure, and the pandemic. the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. it was hard to get copies out, um, and so a lot of people actually turned to the Audible for for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to this day, like the Audible is outselling the hard copy, like almost two to one. People like to listen. Well, you're very good at it. it the the Audible is excellent because you read thanks, it. Man. It's really good. It's a fantastic book. I've read it twice. I listened to it twice. Really? I say. Yes. Thanks, man. Yeah, all the way through twice. Thank you. It's really good, man. It's like you know, it's so compelling and detailed and fascinating, and it really opens up people's imagination to the roots of all these things and like w- where this all came from and what these people were experiencing. Thank you, man. It's fucking awesome. It's been very humbling to go through this. What's cool, it's got to be great for you because there was a lot of uncertainty of you going down this path. Yeah, man, I quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> there was no plan B. Well, yeah. sometimes that's what you have to do, right? It worked out. Yeah. Spectacularly. I felt like I was losing my soul at some point. Mm. Like I was always, uh, I mean, I love being a lawyer. I went to law school for a reason, but... Uh, this th- this is the stuff that always kept me up at night. You know, like this was just a fun passion project on nights mm-hmm. and weekends, and then it became a book yeah. and a thing. But like that wasn't that wasn't the the purpose. I was and and to this day, like I'm, I still want to know. That's why I said like I'm not satisfied. Like I, I want to know the actual answers. Of course. To this stuff. Um, yeah. Oh, we all do. Well, I'm very hopeful in that there is like real research being done and a, a real attempt to test all of these other vessels. And I think that would be wildly ambitious and really fantastic to see it all come, like to find out what the results are. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's like rare and there's very few of these things contain drugs and maybe they all do, (laughs) which is crazy. That'd be the craziest. There's drugs everywhere? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably the case. You know, we were very fortunate. Um, went to uh, Chichen Itza once, and mm. I had this really good guide. He was a really interesting guy who was a, a local professor in Mexico, and he would give guides of the Mayan temples. And one of the things that he openly talked about was the psychedelic consumption, mm. that there was some area of one of these temples where they would take this thing that had a very LSD-like properties to it. They didn't totally understand it. When I went to Chichen Itza, we're talking mm. about like 2003 or something like okay. that. It was quite a while ago. <clears throat> and, you know, to have this guy explain that to me, it was really interesting. So I think I think it existed in so many. I think wherever they could find it, they took it. There was another. I hate to keep bouncing off all these headlines, but there was another headline from Peru uh, around psychedelic lace beer. Mm. Which uh, you you can see it in CNN, also Nat Geo, I think. If you look up psychedelic beer Peru, it'll probably come up. And this is recent. And as this well. is also recent, just in, mm. in the past in the past couple of years. Wow! Like you would never. I mean, when I was I was researching from 2007, this book, which came out in 2020, never did I come across a headline psychedelic laced beer. Right. If I had it, this would have been very irrelevant. Ancient Peruvians partied hard, spiked their beer with hallucinogens to win friends. How do you know why they did it? <laughs> to win friends. That was a leap. I don't think you needed that part. You know? 
Lacing the beer served at their feast with hallucinogens may have helped age in Peruvian people known as the Wari. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Wari, yeah. Wari forge political alliances and expand their empire, according to a new paper published in the journal Antiquity. Recent excavations at a remote Wari outpost called, how do you say that? Quilcampa? Uh, Quilcapampa. Quilcapampa? Quilcapampa. Quilcapampa. Uh, unearthed seeds from the vilca tree. Vilca. Vilca? Yep. Vilca. That can be used to produce a potent hallucinogenic drug. The authors think that the Wari held one big final blowout before the site was abandoned. Hmm. Wild. So the vilca is uh, anadanantra. Anadanantra, either colubrina or peregrina. And that's been here a while. There, there's evidence of uh, the use of that going back thousands of years. Mm. Um, just after Christopher Columbus actually came to the Caribbean, one of his associates writes about, uh, it's called Yopo, Yopo or Cahoba, that was in use um, around what is today like the, the DR and that part of the Caribbean. Mm. So it's been around a very long time. As, as soon as the colonists arrived to this part of the world, they, they found drugs. Wow. Yeah, Cahoba, Yopo. Um, last but not least, before we get out of here, yeah. one of the things I found out about you when we're on a little trip together <laughs> is that you're interested in UFOs. <laughs> There's a giant UFO behind you. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I, anybody that's really fascinated with it, I have to bring it up. What do you, what's your take on all this UA, UAP disclosure stuff and all these reports and these fighter pilots that are seeing these things that defy our understanding of propulsion systems that are currently available. What, what is your, your thoughts on these things? Um, there's probably something to it. I don't know what it is. I don't think anybody knows what it is, but I, I don't think you can contradict the pilots at this point. And uh, a friend of mine, Leslie Kane, has written um, a book about this, uh, which is sort of a gold standard in the field. Um, it's called UFOs. Um, and uh, I don't think we can really ignore it uh, we were able to ignore it for many decades until relatively recently, and now you see congressional investigations and you see uh, different <clears throat> witnesses coming forward. So I, I think it's a, a gigantic mystery that kind of like these ancient mysteries that fascinate me can't really go ignored much longer. Uh, I'm not <clears throat> entirely sure what's being witnessed are like extraterrestrial craft, like, like physical things being piloted by, like, flesh and blood beings from, you know, vast stretches of the cosmos. I think, and I've said this before on, on the record, I think there's something, <clears throat> like, far, far stranger about it. I don't know, I don't know what it is, but when I read, um, like, Jacques Vallée, for example, I, I love the hypothesis that these things, you know, fit better into mythology and folklore than they do into, into science and engineering journals, uh, because there have been sightings for as long as we've been around. Um, and not just about things in the sky, but things that interact with us. And so uh, Passport to Magonia uh, is a really cool book that talks about the interaction of, you know, what these could be today and what they looked like in the past. And uh, I just think it's it's a huge mystery. It's a huge mystery. That's really all you really can say, right? That's all anybody can really say. Yeah. Except maybe some people that work for... <laughs> One of the Defense Department contractors <laughs> that actually has a UFO stored in the basement somewhere. It's not a mystery. Yeah, to them, yeah, yeah. to them, it's not a mystery. Yeah. But they're keeping their mouth shut, unfortunately. Yeah. Now you see, NASA's taking an interest, and mm-hmm. 
I think that the, the conversations in Washington are really wild. Yeah, about, yeah. about the new the new interest in this stuff. Um, but I I don't know something in me tell uh, just something in me is not drawn to the engineering um, side of of the conversation. Uh, I'm I'm drawn like with the ancient mysteries. I'm drawn to folklore and and mythology. Uh, and I think that you know to understand the the root of that phenomenon will tell us a lot about ourselves actually, which is why we talked about Homo naledi, you know, this this ancient hominin that I think that discovery tells us more about what it means to be human. You know, if, if, if it's not our brain size, or we talked a lot about creativity, you know, like I think questions about the deep past force us to ask questions about who we are today. And I think this phenomenon, whatever it is, is the same. Like whether or not we're alone in the cosmos, that's one question. But like, the relationship between these sightings and our psyches and consciousness, mm. I, I think, is a far more profound question. And, and again, some of the questions that the early researchers like J. Allen Hynek were asking about this phenomenon, he says that something that like when the long-awaited solution to the UFO problem comes, um, I think it will prove to be not just um, uh, the next small step in the march of science, but in a mighty and unexpected quantum leap. Wow. That to understand this issue is to understand something very profound. Let's end with that. That's perfect. <laughs> Brian, you're the man. I appreciate you very much. It was really cool hanging out with you in Greece, and it's always great to have you on here. And your book is now available on paperback. I, I'm assuming they made a lot of copies this time. <laughs> we, we, we will find out. <laughs> <laughs> we will find out. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Bye, everybody. Bye.